Welcome to Joiners, the podcast with Tim and Danny, where we explore the world of hospitality by chatting with its most colorful characters. That's right. Happy summer, Danny. We are past the solstice. We are. We are officially in patio season. That's right. And the pod is a year old. I think we've reached the one year mark. We have. Congratulations, Danny. To you as well, Tim. I didn't think you could do it. Let's pat ourselves (laughs) on the back. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. Uh, self-important episode coming your way. <laughs> uh, all right. So patio season is among us. I, I prefer to dine al fresco, mm-hmm. but not in every condition. I don't think I do, actually. Really? Well, here's guy. what happened the other day. You're an indoor kid. Well, check this out. <laughs> Sitting on a patio, the table is not a solid material. It's like... Mesh. Kind metal of a mesh, mesh, yeah. metal mesh table. Mm-hmm. Eating with my kids. Were you a big star? Nope. One of my kids uh, not eating super clean. And then, like, sure enough, my pants mm-hmm. that are under the table are getting just, like... Your pristine white shorts. Yeah, khaki pants getting wrecked with tomato sauce uh, dripping off these messy meatballs. And now I've got... My pants are ruined. Yeah. What's the deal? I think you got to make your table a solid material. I... This has crossed my mind. If you don't if you spill onto the mesh, yeah. it's just straight onto your pants. It's straight onto your pants. You, no one has a napkin that goes all the way from your lap to your toes. Now that's interesting. Is that something stock I think manufacturing stock could make that. can manufacture? <laughs> we can make anything. <laughs> the leg bib. <laughs> yeah, the leg bib specifically designed for Danny. Yeah. No, that does suck. You know what else sucks? Spilling a drink. Yeah. Knocking over a drink. <laughs> yes. Like a reference to last night when I. Yeah. When yes, when I spilled water on Paul, it actually is. That is the most benign <laughs> thing to spill. Like that's like I also always, rarely spill. I'm pretty hard yeah. on myself. Well, there's always a spill. panic moment when a drink yeah. spills, and then it's always like, oh, that was just water. Yeah, but when it's cool not water, it. wine is the worst thing to spill, obviously. Well, but there's yeah. no bouncing back. And the thing that sucks is every time I spill a drink, because it happens, it happens to everybody. Yeah, it's extremely embarrassing. It is, even though it shouldn't be. But it like, is, yeah, it's embarrassing because. Well, usually I do it because it'll happen when I'm telling a story and I'm animated and I'm like using my hands. So it's like usually towards like the climax of the story and then it just ruins. The the yeah. story is completely railroaded. Why yep. you, it shouldn't be embarrassing though. It really shouldn't. I think it's embarrassing because it's an accident. But I think that maybe if you own it and you're like, oh no, I meant to do that. <laughs> yeah, I meant to spill that one. <laughs> I bet it goes back to like childhood when you're getting reprimanded for spilling things. That could So be. there's like an immediate sense of kind of shame for spilling. Yeah. Are you, you know, don't uh, cry over spill milk. Are your kids big spillers? Um, Arthur more so than Ruby for sure. Yeah. Well, he's older. <laughs> yeah, he's got more beverages. He, yeah, as long as, as long as it doesn't happen deliberately, it's not something to get upset about. Yeah. Well, you know who's not shy about spilling the beans on the hospitality industry? (laughs) I walked right into that. (laughs) You really did. It's this week's guest, Michael Negrin from The Hunger. That's right. Very fun conversation. Um, I love that he he's. I think he's listened to almost every episode of the pod. It was cool to get his feedback. That's the one thing Tim loves about him. That's the only thing that we talked about was uh, we quizzed him on past episodes of Joiners. (laughs) It's just an hour long conversation (laughs) of us. No media trivia. Yeah, but Michael's had a really cool career, and we appreciate how honest he is um, and transparent with his kind of his reviews and his approach and his ethics. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's got a really interesting perspective. And I highly recommend that you subscribe to his uh, Substack, The Hunger. 
I second that. And also, he we realized that he had a podcast, a food podcast, very similar yeah. to Joiners. <laughs> That's right. But Way. like 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Like before podcasts, yeah. you know, Tim and I just Mary mine. was the only guy in the game back then. Yeah, we just mine ideas from 15 years ago. Yeah. We just comb the internet, see what's been done already. He put it out there in the ether and uh, yeah. the oversoul. We had to cool. tap into it. Well, All anyway, right. <laughs> without yeah. further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Michael Nagrin. So, yeah, you were in the podcasting game long before we were. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, the, the way I got started was, um, you know, I knew I wanted to write about food. Uh, as you can imagine, like when you try to pitch people and stuff, they don't know who you are. You have no track record. So I had a background. I worked in e-commerce. So I knew how to like code Java and HTML. So I created a website called Hungry Magazine. Yeah. And uh Blogs were already kind of like doing their thing already at that point. They weren't like saturated, but they were pretty on their way. And so I knew I wanted to do something like original. So I was like, oh, what's this like podcasting thing? Wow. And so I just like, and for me, it was like, you know, like, uh, of course, I'd like grown up listening to NPR and all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, what I didn't see, and this is why I say to you guys, I love what you guys do so much, is that the in-depth conversation with chefs like you always got like 10 or 15 minutes or you always got these little profiles but like i could talk to people for like two days you know just like you guys can i <laughs> you know i'm sure these podcasts you guys do some of them could be like three hours four hours yeah. if you want it right um whether listeners want that or not whatever <laughs> yeah, right. Right? we gotta keep it interesting <laughs> um, to them but like uh so for me i was just like i want to do something that like is different in the marketplace um, something that I was passionate about. And so that's what I did. And it was so early that maybe there was like two or three other food podcasts. Oh, my God. I'm not joking. I was like, I, I don't know if I was ever number one, but I was like probably number three in like Apple Podcasts at one point. Because, again, Whoa. like there was probably like a few hundred. It wasn't like a, wow. you know. Yeah. yeah now so everybody's got at least one podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking about doing ones again. So, like, you know. Yeah, I, looked, I was looking at people that you'd interviewed, and I was reminded of uh, of Natalie Zarzour. Uh -huh. I hadn't thought of, like, Natalina Pasticheria for so long. Yeah. Well, I have no idea what she's even up to or anything. I, I know she moved to Detroit at one point, and she okay. was working at, like, uh, I think it's just like a pastry chef for like Grey Ghost or Selden Standard, like one of the big Detroit restaurants. And that's like the last I heard of her. But yeah. I mean, I know we share a common friend of Mike Sula. Yeah. And, you know, like I know like Mike was early on her. And I think the common thing that is kind of funny that Mike and I share is that we both loved her so much. And, like, at one point, I think she turned on both of us and told us, like, we didn't know what the fuck we were talking about. <laughs> Even though we were telling everybody we loved her stuff, she just yeah. got really... And I understand it. I mean, you guys know this industry is really tough. Um, you know, if, if somebody asks me, like, why I'm a food critic or whatever, I mean, um, there's a lot of reasons. But it's places like Pestisserie and Adelina that I'm yeah. looking for, you know? Yeah. Like, because we know that those places are special and they're hard to find. They don't exist that often. Um, and every time one of those close, it hurts. Yeah. So like, yes, I, I get it. It's a business. I get that people have, um, you know, a lot on the line and stuff. And even if they're not bringing their a game, like, you know, there is a debate about whether one should be, uh, you know, should, should you write negative reviews or those kind of things. But I am absolutely positive that the reason that I do what I do 
is because there are places like Pastor Syria and Adelina, um, you know, frankly, places like Scofflaw, not just saying that because oh, you're here. You. You. Yeah. But I mean, like, I think, you know, like, I don't know you. I, I didn't know you guys. But like, I know, like, I've always like wrote well, like when you guys had Sink Swim, like there's just places you identify, you know, like um, and they're they're cut, they're cut above. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but they're trying and they're doing something that nobody else is doing. And, and those are the, the that's what I'm excited. That's all what I'm all. Yeah. About. What do you think the special sauce is? Of a restaurant in general? Yeah, like, because, I don't know, it, it's it's hard to put into words, but you go to a place and it's maybe the intention or the execution, but something seems different. Yeah. What? How can you define that, or can you? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the way I always think about it is, like, it might not be fair to restaurants, but I am looking for art. And, mm. and the place, you know, it's like, I think restaurants, we can debate whether it's an art or a craft, but, like... I think that there's places that tend away from the craft a little bit. They've gone beyond it. They did the crawl walk phase. Now they're in the run phase or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so, for example, I, I could take a perfect, you know, so recently I wrote a review about Lust Luck, right? What did not go well. It was not a great thing. It didn't work out, right? Um, but if you look back at my reviews about Boca Group over time, 90% of them are very positive. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some of them, for example, like Momo Taro, like, when I look at, like, Momotaro, I remember, I can, I can still remember clearly signing the check at Momotaro. It came in, like, this, like, inner office mail envelope. It came with this little Mitsubishi pencil. Like, I went home and I ordered that pencil off Amazon. Like, I've never gone to a restaurant and ordered their check writing pencil before, you know what <laughs> I mean? And, like, even just the idea of them telling that story about, like, the Japanese salary man. And it's like, yes, it's a restaurant first. But then there's a layer and layer on top of it. And, and, and like for me, like when I compare those two experiences between the two, it, it, it's like what's the fundamental difference? And the fundamental difference is that what Rob and Kevin did with Momotaro is, is art. And what they did with Les Select, I, I mean, to be fair, um, it, not everything has to be art. But at the same time, if I'm really honest about it, like it, it, it felt almost like too commercial. Like it's a huge space. There's, you know, we all know like that sort of like Le Bouchon night, you know, when you're on industry night yeah. and you're sitting there and you're in that small room and it's very personal and mm-hmm. you feel like everything's on fire. Or like if maybe you go to a really good night out on a nice patio with, with your friends, like drinking cocktails or whatever, like that kind of feel, that energy. Um, and, and, you know, it's tough to have that in a room like Lost Select. But then even, you know, like you guys always ask this question about like what annoys you about restaurants, right? Like that's sadly almost like my job, right? Like I'm answering that question (laughs) all the time. But it's like with that, like even the basic fundamentals of like, you know, things being delivered on time, like they they had that appetizer cart, right? And that that they have, I I understand maybe they had two or one of those appetizers carts for the, you know, the, I don't know how big their room is, but it's got to be at least 30,000 feet or 20,000 feet, something like that. It's huge. And it's like, you can't, and, and so, like, we ordered that, and then the way, the server was like, yeah, it's going to be, it could be a little bit, so do you mind if we bring, like, some mains before we bring, you know, and it's like, mm, yeah, just things that weren't thought out, right? So, um, which is not, you know, again, I think those guys do create art all the time. Like, I went to Gene Cato's new spot. You know, I liked it a lot. You know, it's, it's a, especially at that price point, like, for sushi, because mm-hmm. Gene's doing, like, top-level sushi, but he's not charging you, like, Kyoten prices for it necessarily. So, yeah. you know, it's it, it's never personal, and, and, and it's just about, like, I, I mean, we, we take it to another level, right? Like, 
I'm I, I I'm I'm okay. I got a pretty good job, but I'm not rich, you know. But I do pay for everything out of pocket, so that's yeah, another fundamental these are pricey difference. Pricey meals, right? I, I I it's not like I'm getting like a trib dime. I'm not getting like red eye dime. I used to Chicago sometimes, yeah. all that stuff, right? Um, and so I feel it like a real consumer. So mm-hmm. which I feel like gives me like a little bit more of like a reason to be like, okay, I'm just. It responding to this experience in terms of a, an actual personal experience, yeah, it's not, an honest perspective. Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 but what I fundamentally understand about this is that like you have a lot of you know this isn't an original thought, but like Ruth Reichel talked about when she was a young critic, she had a hard time like coming around to writing a fair review even for a place that was like, and she was like debating whether she should do it or not. And the thing she said, she she like always thought about like this um, like this idealized young couple that just got married. They love food and wine, but they don't have a lot of money. They have to make decisions in their pocketbook. Like, what do they do? They go out to dine. Do they not go out to dine? And she was like, I'm always thinking of that person of like, if they go to this restaurant and I told them to go there. And they spend like a hundred bucks that they didn't have, which they could have spent on groceries or something, whatever it is. Like, I want to make sure that I honored that kind of relationship. And yeah. so, I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of other things we could talk about. Like, I probably need therapy, but like, <laughs> I, I think about like, why do I even do this? Because again, the other thing for me too is like, you know, this idea of like what's right or what's ethical or like what's justice. It's like. You know, it's like, a, it's interesting to hear guys like uh, Terry Alexander on the podcast. They like went to Medill, you know? Yeah. So I think like, it's interesting. I think guys like that understand kind of what I do. Like one of the best things that, one of the best things I ever got was a phone call from Donnie Medea and Donnie calls me up one day and, and uh, it was a good review, but I'd say I probably wrote one or two one-off reviews that weren't like great or perfect or whatever. And Donnie said to me on the good review, he's like, listen, He's like, I understand that getting this review means something because you don't just write good reviews. Mm-hmm. And like, that's like the biggest compliment I could get. You what know? spot was it? Do you remember? <sighs> I don't know. I, I was probably CanCal at the time, oh, which okay. I liked, yeah. which didn't like. Yeah, short lived. Obviously work out. But like, I, I thought, you know, Felipe Aspina was the GM at the time. Yeah. And I thought they were doing it. Was, it had great energy. It was good, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. I like that spot. Um, so, like, what what do you think is the most important part of writing? Is it is it flexing your writing muscle? Is it the recommendation for a, you know the young couple you're talking about? Is it bringing a unique perspective, or is it finding a place that needs to be discovered? Like what what do you, if you had to distill to like what's the sole purpose of of writing, or could you pick one thing? I feel like I mean I feel like when it's good. All those things matter together. Yeah. And in a really good interplay, you know? Um, yeah. I guess what's the driving force when you're thinking of a topic to write on? The, I mean, it's, it's to go back to what we just said earlier, like the idea of identifying people who are really. Yeah. So really, it's a discovery. Yeah. You know, like, you know, the kind of stuff of like just, you know, I mean, we could talk about another one. I just recently wrote Warlord, right? Like, yeah. I, so I have, you know, I didn't go to journalism school. I don't care about breaking news. I don't care about like all those stuff that, you know, like I don't see it as a competition. I believe it's like all like a rising tide lifts all ships. Like I try to celebrate like Nick Kindlesperger, like John Kessler, like who all the, I don't see those guys as our rivals. I see those guys as like fellow colleagues and yeah. like the uplift of the food community um, and celebrating good work. Right. And so 
Like, my thing is, um, you know, but, so I, to keep in mind, I don't care about breaking news, but when I ate at Warlord, and I was, like, sitting in that booth, and, like, experiencing, like, the fire from the open hearth, and, like, you know, the Betty Davis music, and, like, seeing those guys, like, literally sweating, like, it was, like, it, like, Bourdain would have died over it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, not to say that that's even my kind of restaurant, but for me at this moment, it absolutely was. Like, I'm tasting stuff on my plate that's just, like, some of it's very simple. Like, hey, we're just going to put out some Warp Farm greens here. We're going to dress them very simply. You know, not very creative, not very artistic, but so perfect in its execution that they're like, listen, we don't need to stand behind, like, an encapsulation or, like, some molecular gas. You know, like, not that there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I worked on the Elena Cookbook, but, yeah. like, um, and and so when I felt that, like, I, literally, like, the, that night, I'm in bed at like three in the morning and I'm like, it's going through my head and I'm like replaying the experience and I'm replaying like what happened, what I experienced, what I felt. I I, I woke up at 5am. I almost never do this. And I, I literally just got on the keyboard and started writing because <laughs> I was so inspired by the experience, you know? Um, so I, I mean, and, and more than anything, it's like when you see that thing and, he, and you, you're like, I want people to know about this and I want people to celebrate it. And I, I want them to go far. Yeah. You, know? you can't keep it to yourself. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. So in, in after a meal like that, how do you? I'm bad at remembering meals. Do you take notes? I know I know you like to be discreet, so probably not taking notes at a restaurant. But when you get home, do you take notes, or are, is it the type of thing where you're lying in bed thinking about it? Yeah. Uh, so what I do is I used to never take notes because I for the same reason, right? Like I know Mike used to go to the bathroom mm-hmm. and like write stuff down or whatever, which I love. <laughs> the bathroom stall. <laughs> Um, this is Sula we're talking about. Yeah. And, and, uh, um, but like, I was like very early on, I was like, well, I could do that or I could just like, this is my job, right? I'm here. I'm in it. I have to keep it up here and I have to pay attention. Um, the good news about the internet is you can go back and verify details or call people. So you don't have to, like, if it was like 50 years ago, I probably would have written a lot down because it's like, yeah. I had no way of getting back at it probably. Um, because Accuracy is important. I'm not always perfectly accurate, for sure. I'm sure people point out inaccuracies in any of my reviews or whatever. I try to be. Um, but but so, I, so I don't write down. However, what I have done with the advent of, like, iPhones and stuff, because I was doing it in, like, 2005, so, you know, probably still, like, flip phone, right? So mm-hmm. I, you didn't have a really way to do it discreetly even on a phone. But if it's something I think I might forget or it's something that I think – I might like pull up the notes app and write like a little thing. Yeah. Um, or what I typically what I do is when I get home, I'll pull up the notes app and and write like the ten bullet points I want to hit, mm-hmm. and then I'll come back to it. You know. But it's rarely like within that twenty four hour period, which is why Warlord was so interesting because it was like, I can't if I don't do this today, I, like I'll just hate myself. Like I gotta yeah. get, I couldn't get it out of the system. Yeah. Do you have a checklist that you're considering? Are you going like the five senses in the in the space? Is it uh, how important is um, is the ambiance? And we talked about yeah. the first three places we talked about all the Boca spots: uh, Momotaro, uh, Itoko, and what else did we talk about? Le Select. And Le Select. Like I think those were all uh, Avroco design spaces. So yeah. extremely intricate, almost maximalist design. Is that does that does that have to play into the food? The whole presentation does that matter to you? It doesn't. Like I don't have a rubric. I mean, I think if you look at my reviews over you know, from 2005 to today, 
um, you can see that, which is sometimes I hit on it, sometimes I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes, like, I'll spend a lot of time on food, sometimes I won't. Um, I should probably spend more time on cocktails. Um, <laughs> I try to, you know, but, uh, you know, you kind of got to balance out with the food and the dessert and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And so, um, but, it, like, if it's, you know, like, obviously I wrote about, like, Abe's Spot and, like, Metal Lark. And so all I really talked about mostly was cocktails because that's what it is, yeah. you know. Um, it, like, I, that's the thing. I don't, like, if a place is, like, done on a shoestring, that's exciting in its own way too. I mean, in some ways, when you think about Warlord, is the space is built really well for the fact that they bootstrapped it, you know. Mm-hmm. But like they did some really cool things where they like dyed the floor green, um, you know. They like did these like uh, constructed like they almost look like fallen log scenes or whatever that are in like the the foyer of the restaurant. Um, stuff that probably didn't cost a lot but have like really big impact mm-hmm. because it's nice and because it's like a vibe I haven't seen before or whatever. I'll acknowledge that because that's unique about it. Yeah. But if they didn't have the dollars to do that stuff and I still felt that energy and I still felt the food was great, I might just talk about that. I don't, you know, it just, it, it, you know, and then, it, I mean, the other thing about the Warlord review is like, I probably spent like 2,000 words on the white stripes before I got to the food, you know? So it's like, <laughs> which I know, like, and that's the thing is like, every time I criticize a restaurant, like, I know that somebody's reading it going like, dude, you don't even talk about the food. Like, you've spent, like, a thousand on some <laughs> stupid arcane topic. And I get that, too. That's a completely fair criticism in the same way. I could say, listen, I really thought the dessert trolley should be here, you know? Yeah. So, we were yeah. reading your uh, smoke steak review before you came in. And, yeah, it took a while to get to the actual food. Yeah. But, but it's it's good writing. It's interesting. Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the interesting about smoke, right? So... Uh, I'm a big ethics guy, right? Like I like I still dine anonymously. We talked about like we'll blur out my face because you know it just I think it's important if I can do it. I'm not always anonymous, of course, right? Um, I've met enough people in the industry, especially when I did the podcast before I knew I was going to be a critic. So I met a lot of people face to face, but like um, I certainly met Barry. You know, uh, I did a podcast with Barry actually, and. I'm a big, big fan of what Barry does, and and the the consistency with Smoke Barbecue. Um, I mean, I think like Charles with Umami Q is doing some really good stuff now. But like, for you know, I don't know how long have they been open now? Ten years? I, yeah, more. Yeah. Probably, yeah, fifteen. They've yeah. they've been at the top of their game. You know, like I remember even during the pandemic, I hadn't had it in like a year or two, and I ordered. And I remember back in like when they opened, um, I thought the ribs were above average but weren't like mind-blowing or whatever where i love the brisket right nobody's doing I'm the brisket, brisket guy, yeah. yeah and that that's my go-to but i got like ribs and like the ribs were like 30 40 percent better than they used to be like the, those guys are always improving i respect what yeah. they do but i would also say like you know smoke isn't there smoke steak for me isn't there yet so mm-hmm. and, and that's you know what's interesting about that is this, so this is why i advocate for like not like developing close relationships with people in the industry because you guys are all my favorite. Like, you know, like, I, pff, who do I want to be friends with? Like, people who share the same passions. But I've, but I've also sort of felt like it puts me in a situation like this where it's like, I like start thinking about like, I really like Barry and I really like what. But the other way I think about it is, I'm not like the New York Times. Like, if I write something that's feedback, if if it's not good feedback, I mean, it's good feedback for you, but it's not good feedback about the restaurant. I'm not going to kill you. You're, mm-hmm. you, you're going to survive. You're going to go on. It could be constructive. Yeah. And so in some ways, the way I even think about it in this case is, and I, I'm not saying that it's always been the case. Like when I was younger and I was hungry and I was like, oh, you know, first time I'm doing this, I don't know what this is. Like I probably said some things 
that I today would not say, but my standard for a very long time is like, I won't say something in a review that I wouldn't say to your face. Mm. And even if I, I don't know if I totally have met this standard yet, but like if it were like a consultative relationship, if you were paying me and you said, hey, you experienced this, what did you see? And therefore you want that feedback of like, mm. oh, this didn't happen or that didn't happen. That's how I, like when I do try to do negative feedback now, I always want it to be like, actionable like the salt wasn't there like server didn't come you know like those kind of things right so that that's kind of the standard that i'm working at today didn't always work that way but i but that's where where i'm trying to be today this episode is brought to you by scofflaw old tom gin a tasty versatile spirit Created in Chicago in 2012, the product was born out of a need for a bespoke iteration of the Old Tom style, which is the slightly sweeter predecessor to London Dry. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin carries classic notes of orange peel, juniper, and coriander while balancing on a subtle floral edge thanks to the addition of osmanthus blossoms. Its elevated proof is suitable in cocktails or unadorned. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, complete your bar. Has the writing changed from, let's say, being with the Chicago sometimes to being with the hunger, you know, doing the hunger versus that writing? Yeah, 100%. I, I mean, I think, I think the, the writing that I do today is the writing I always wanted to do. I mean, as you guys know, you work as a bartender at yeah. other places, and then you have scofflaw, and you're like, okay, I can do whatever I want, right? Yeah. And therefore, everything I put together, I've created a style. So that's what the hunger represents. The hunger is my restaurant. The hunger is like my publication. It's my bar, whatever it is. Uh, it's you know my 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 clothing manufacturer, so to speak. Like <laughs> um, it it like. But before that, I worked for other people. You've got a, a lot of stops in your career path, but let's do it. I guess w- what was your first gig writing, and maybe come forward briefly because it could we could spend an hour and a half yeah. on it. I think well, easy. Let me do like the other thing about it is like I'm a kid from Michigan. I'm, my mom's Polish, like, she came here when she was 10, so I'm first generation. Um, you know, I grew up in a blue-collar family. My dad's, like, a tool-and-die guy, so I didn't grow up eating fancy, mm. you know. But I did grow up eating, like, you know, like, duck blood soup, Chinina, which is, like, a, a Polish, like, soup. Um, you know, all kinds of, like, Polish immigrant food um, stuff that, like, any other, you know, like, when you interview people, um, like from like Kasama, like Tim and Jeannie, or and they talk about the heritage stuff that they grew up with. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always a sort of like conflict about like, I don't know if they had it, but I know I had it, which was like, it, other people aren't eating this stuff, but I like it, but I don't feel, you know, like this, like, am I, and granted I was born here, but like, am I American? Am I Polish? Yeah. Am I like in that sort of tension? I think Juan Kim touched on that too yeah. a lot. Like kind of having shame about having like the stinky kimchi meal exactly. at school. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, let's, again, uh, who, people who've never seen me, I'm a white cis male, <laughs> you know, like I'm not like trying to make an equivalency there, but it did exist. And, and for me, that's where like the food interest comes from initially. Yeah. But like, I mean, I was a kid who grew up, you know, like when you, we do the, the fast food round, I could probably go for an hour, right? Like, I'm I looking love, forward to that. Yeah, I love fast food, <laughs> yeah. like legit, like because franchise and fast food for me is like a holiday because I'm always eat, I'm lucky that I get to eat so well, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um. And, and so, uh, you know, but the thing was like, so it's like, how do how do I even get here? Writing about like a, working on the Alinea cookbook, you know, yeah. from that background. And so, like for me, it was like very much. I I didn't know it at the time, but I know it now, which is like. Um, my wife, who's my wife now, but we were dating in college 
And we were like looking for a place to go for spring break. And we were like, okay, uh, let's go to Chicago. Well, spring break for us in college was February. So, of course, they had great deals in Chicago. I didn't think oh, about yeah. the fact that, like, why would that be? Oh, because it's absolutely, like, polar vortex. And uh, no one wants to be here. No one is here, right? Where was college for you? Uh, Michigan. Okay. So, not a, you know, not a bad commute. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, and, and so, we show up here. And 19 years old. I'm 19, like, suburban kid from Detroit. Um, we got a, uh, a room at the Blackstone on Michigan Avenue. Yep. But this is when the Blackstone, this is like 98, 99 maybe. So the Blackstone's owned by the Maharishi Institute, you know, like the Beatles guru. They had like a, a Vedic Sciences University on like the seventh floor, and then they just Whoa. kept the hmm. hotel going. But it was like very threadbare, right? Like, so again, good deal, right? Um, you know, it, it almost, it felt like the shining, like there was nobody there. Like, you know, like the, the curtains were like threadbare. It was like really weird. So we show up and, and, uh, we get showed to this room and I'm not making this up. There were rooms at the, the Blackstone that faced like an internal courtyard. So you literally faced a brick wall looking out your window. <laughs> so we sat, we sat, we sat on the bed and we're looking at the brick wall and the bellhop looks at us and he goes, hold on. He's like, I'll be right back. And I was like, all right, that's fine. So. He comes back. He's like, I got you guys a different room. And I was like, oh, that's great. You know, great hospitality. And uh, they put us in the presidential suite of the Blackstone. Whoa. Overlooking Grant Park, top floor, like, you know, multiple rooms. Like, it was like crazy. It was like some Macaulay Culkin film. I'm like, <laughs> I don't. But again, nobody's there. So it's like, I don't know why they didn't just go there in the first place. But that's fine. So, um, but, uh, you know, what I remember distinctly is they had a wine spectator in the room. And it was like the best restaurants in Chicago. And of course, like Charlie Trotter, mm. Everest, Ambria, like that that era. And um, I was like, we were going to see uh, like this play, the Buddy Holly uh, at the Apollo Theater, which I, Apollo I think no longer exists. They knocked it down recently or whatever. But um, it's in like Lincoln Park or whatever. And um, I didn't know what a pre-theater menu was, but I read, you know, Everest has a pre-theater menu. So I'm like, we're going to see theater. We should get a pre-theater menu. It seems like what you do. <laughs> and but, but the thing about it, it was, it was even back then, like I said, like this is late 90s, the pre-theater menu or the prefix menu for Everest, like before 530 or whatever it was, it was like an early bird special for like gourmets, I guess. I don't know why you would offer something before 530, but that's fine. So, um... It was like, I, I, if I remember correctly, I think it was $27. Wow. And I was like, even then, as a college kid who, like, you know, was like, we came because there was a deal, another deal. You know, I'm like, okay, let's do this. So, but of course, there's nothing like Everest. I don't know. Have you guys, do you, no. I yeah. never made it to Everest. Yeah. So Everest, like, for people who don't know, like, it, you know, John Joho was a chef, one of the great restaurants of Chicago back in the 90s, 80s. Um, you know, and, but the thing about Everest was it was in the trade building. It was like on the 40th floor or something like that. You had to take two elevators up to it. They're like gold plated elevators. Um, nothing like this in Detroit, nothing exists like this in Detroit, not even in like the Renaissance center. So, um, you know, I remember, uh, of course I brought khakis and like a white Oxford, like I didn't have a suit. I didn't, you know, of course I put that on, you know, and, and so we're going up and switch over to the elevator bank, go up again. And and I distinctly remember the door opens and like, I, I swear to God, I, my first thought was like, is this Liberace's palace? Cause it was like white columns, alabaster. They had leopard print rug. And the, of course the mater D was in tails. And like he, he, he had like, uh, he did not have a monocle, 
But in my mind, I was like looking at Mr. Peanut. Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm like, I, every ounce of my, every ounce of my body was like, I'm going back in the elevator. We're going to get deep dish pizza. Like, this isn't happening. But, you know, I like fought the urge. And so we went in. And the, th- the, the lore about Everest is that they had, I think, like seven, uh, two tops or four tops against the, these uh, western facing plate glass windows that overlooked all of the western suburbs. Like on a clear day, mm-hmm. you could see O'Hare. You could at night, it looked like unbelievable, right? You could see this dining room. Yeah, everybody like requested to sit. At, I didn't know this. Everybody requested to sit at these tables, right? So we get sat at a two top right next to the window, and I, but I don't know that it's special other than the fact that I know it's special and and, and that I'm in the moment, and so um, it basically I just. You know, we sit down, they bring the, the menu, and we're like, oh, we're going to do the pre-theater menu or whatever. And they're like, okay, you know. And so, um, and I'm looking at it, and, it, and some of it sounds great, even though I'm still not into food that much. Like, But, like, I remember it was, like, traditional uh, Joho had the signature dish, which was, like, a, a poached lobster and, like, a Gewürztraminer sauce. And, um, you know, I don't remember necessarily everything. But what I do remember is, like, we placed the order, and the next thing I know, this like dish shows up that isn't on the menu. And they're like, this is an amuse. And like they can see like the Michigan in me. They're mm-hmm. like, it's compliments of the chef. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, perfect. Like, because I had ignored this. And but it's I distinctly remember this. It's it's a it was a cauliflower puree fondant in like one of those like soup spoons that everybody used to do one biters in. Mm-hmm. And it had caviar on top. So now I'm like, so for me, again, my mom was a pretty good cook, but she butchered, she's like cauliflower, like always like the sulfur smell in the house. Like, no, I want no part of this as a kid. Mm -hmm. And so that's all I'm thinking about as I'm looking at it. And then fish eggs, like hell no, (laughs) right? I'm like totally freaking out, right? And, uh, you know, I'm looking around and I've been in this situation a lot, like after that too, right? Like I ate like the goat eyeball taco at the Maxwell Street Market. Same thing. Like I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this. This is so cool. And then I'm looking literally at an eyeball staring back at me. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. And then you're looking around and you're like, everybody's looking at me. And I'm like, I got to do the same thing happened in this moment. <laughs> and so I ate it. And, and like for me, the, well, first of all, the cauliflower fondant was like, it was like 50-50 butter and cream and cauliflower. So it's basically like Robichon mashed potatoes yeah. with cauliflower. Um, so there's no way that wasn't going to be good. And then of course, you know, if, you know, caviar, not everybody loves it, but I do like it. And it's like the salt and all that stuff. And like, I didn't know it at that moment, but what turned on for me was you thought you knew what this was going to be and you thought you weren't going to like it and you were scared by it and, and you found something you loved. And I remember turning on switch going like, I don't know anything. And from this point forward, I'm going to seek this stuff out because, and, and it took me probably a year or two to realize that that's what was happening. I didn't know it at that very moment, mm-hmm. but when I look back on it, that was it. And then, you know, fast forward, I'm in Cleveland. I'm, I graduated uh, from college, living on my own. Um, it, this is not a joke. I probably was about to eat my 501st Hot Pocket. Um, in fact, I'm probably well over a thousand these days. Like, I still love the Hot Pockets What's once in a flavor? while. What's your flavor? I mean, you know, like ham and cheddar you know yeah, like that classic. ham is not like real ham i don't know what it is neither is the cheddar neither is the cheddar <laughs> but like it works you know um you know I'll, but I'll, I'll slam any hot pocket um but but i but i did consciously say to myself like all right you can eat your 500 first hot pocket or you can teach yourself to cook and so i started like watching food network like it was my job you know back when emerald and mario and all these guys mm-hmm. actually cooked 
And I started reading the cookbooks. And just like a cook or a chef would, would like anybody you hear from, like these guys like John Shields and, you know, Giuseppe and, and, and you know, Matthias, Matthias and stuff. I mean, like, I'm looking, well, probably not Matthias, but like, I was flipping through the Charlie Trotter cookbook. I was flipping through Thomas Keller, French Laundry, um, Michael Simon, you know, like all that stuff. And Michael Simon, because I lived in Cleveland, he was like the guy, right? And this was before he was Iron Chef, Michael Simon. Mm. He had Lola, the original Lola, which was across the bridge in Tremont. And, you know, I remember uh, one of my first restaurant visits was like, okay, I'm getting into food. I love this stuff. I'm reading about cooking. And by the way, like when I was teaching, like the first thing I ever made was salsa, just fresh, chopped up. And you're like, oh, my God, this is not paste picante, which no no shade to paste. <laughs> but it was way better. And it was like, okay. And then I started working my th- way. Like I'd be like, okay, everybody likes steak. I'm going to teach myself how to make good steak, right? And then it was like oh, everybody goes to creme brulee. I'm going to do creme brulee. And then you know, working my way up to souffle and that kind of thing. But then it started like, oh, now you need to go to restaurants. And so I went to Michael Simon's Lola Bistro or Lola. And 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 there was beef cheek pierogi on the, the thing. And so now it's like, oh, wait, not only is it high end, higher end, it wasn't high end, and, but, but it's Polish food too. Oh man, like I'm totally, it's like speaking to me, right? Full and, circle, yeah. Yeah, and so I was going to places like Fat Cats and stuff. Places Lee Wollen would know or Matt Danko because they, they, those guys grew up there. So, you know, like this is early 2000s uh, Cleveland. Um, then I was working this job and they were like, hey, we have a branch in Elmhurst. Do you want to move out here? I'm like, uh, yeah, that's where Charlie Trotter is. <laughs> so I, 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 I and, and for sure enough, like I literally said yes to moving here for my job because I knew I wanted to dine at Charlie. I also wanted to dine at Blackbird. It became very like Paul Kahn focused at that time too. And so, in fact, if I was honest about myself, I was probably more Paul Kahn than Charlie Trotter, but I appreciated both of those, those, those schools. And so like, sure, sure enough, first thing I move here, like eat at Trotter's, like eat it, like, and I had no money. So like, I'm just, you know, like a lot of young chefs. This was important to me, so this is what I did. I didn't at this time think I wanted to cook, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I, I was a writer. So um, I started, but only because I figured out, like, so I studied cellular and molecular bi- biology and political science, no writing wow. whatsoever, to creative writing my last year. And so the reason, of course, is that, again, as a first-generation kid, my parents weren't like, you could be an artist, you know, right? Like, <laughs> uh, they were like, doctor, lawyer, engineer, that's the way to go. Yeah. And that's where I was kind of headed. And, and uh, But my last year, I took some creative writing classes at Michigan. And then I was like, oh, this is like... And then, you know, I wrote for the Michigan Daily at Michigan for a little bit. But when I, when I was in Cleveland, when I was in um, uh, Chicago in the early 2000s, I started freelancing. So my first piece was I went to... I was like 22 or 23. I went to an NSYNC concert at Soldier Field. <laughs> What's it like if you're like an adult man who's like going to go see Justin Timberlake? And that, so it wasn't even food. And I did that for New City and I did a couple things. And But the whole time I'm passionate about food, but I'm not like putting the two together that I could do those two things. Yeah. Were you thinking eventually you would or were you just getting any writing gig you could? I was just writing because yeah. I was like, but what I did know is I was passionate about food. And I, I mean... In the back of my head, I was like, I'm going to cook. I'm going to I'm gonna go chef. Like, I even did the thing where, like, my parents came over. I cooked them, like, a five-course meal because I wanted them to know that I was serious about this. <laughs> and I wanted them to know I could do it. Yeah, get and their I, blessing. Yeah, and, and I remember my dad going, dude, you know, if you want to cook, go ahead. Like, don't. <laughs> and, which is funny because it's like, you know, but but they're very supportive. So, um, uh, I, this was when, uh, I don't, did, well, you were a perennial, right? Yeah. Were you there when Pauly yeah, was Pauly there? Yeah, was there, yeah. Yeah, so this was 2005, Butter. Uh, Ryan's at Butter. 
nobody knows who Ryan is. Esquire names that this was the year Moto opened and like Alinea was about to open. And Ryan gets like best restaurant in Esquire. And like people are like, what's up with that? And there's a whole, a lot of stories about why that happened. We can yeah. talk about that. But... Oh, this is where Diana was there too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Diana was in that yeah, kitchen. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I remember, you know, it's funny. I didn't know that at the time because I didn't know who Diana was. But when I heard your podcast, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. go, I distinctly remember Diana being there. <laughs> yeah. So and, funny. And, and, and so, um, I I lived two blocks down from uh, Butter, so I walked over there and I like asked for Ryan. I'm dude. I'm I can't believe it. I don't know why. You know, I'm like, hey, uh, Ryan. I just read about you and like whatever. And I'm like, I'd like I'm thinking about being a cook. Like I don't know. Like could I like come into the kitchen for a day or two and observe? And he said yes. And I don't know why, because I had no culinary <laughs> background. And, like, I did. I stayed in the kitchen for two days, watched, helped out a little bit. Then, like, when I was done, I was like, hey, no one really knows who you are. I write. I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but can we sit down? And so we, like, sat down for, like, I think we sat down for, like, four hours, and I recorded all of it. And I, ha- I still probably have it on a micro cassette Whoa, tape, because wow, this wow. is pre-iPhone again. And... Um, then I go back and I'm like, all right. And I wrote like a 3,000 word profile. Still didn't know what I was going to do with it. Then I sold it to the Chicago Journal, which was like this pink broadside paper that was in the West Loop, South Loop, uh, a few other places. And um, then, you know, then I started, I hit on the idea of the website. And I was like, okay, um, I want to do podcasts. I got four hours of tape. So I put Brian up as like the first one. And if, I mean, if you listen to it, I sound like, you know, I'm a serial killer. Like I'm like super mon- I'm like, welcome to Hungry Magazine. You know, like it's so bad. And, 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 but it was, but it, the content was good. Right. Cause it was like passionate yeah. about cooking. And then that started leading to more stuff. And so I distinctly remember like I, um, um, I, I wanted to do Paul Khan. So I, I think I, after I did like three or four, um, I asked Paul. And and Paul was like, yeah, absolutely. Because so again, at that point, what did they? What did Paul have open? Just Blackbird. Avec and Blackbird Avec, would have yeah. been open okay. for sure. And and so um, we go to what what is the Elska space now? But yeah. would have been Saltis at the time, mm. which I don't know if you guys know about Saltis, but like the dude who ran Saltis was like a like a major cardiothoracic surgeon. He would work like a like a twelve hour shift and then go to the restaurant and work another like twelve. <laughs> I mean, this guy was crazy. Whoa. Oh, that is crazy. It was actually a pretty good restaurant too, to be honest. But like, um, it, for whatever reason, it didn't work out. But like, um, when I was so. Paul rides up in his bicycle like Paul did or probably still does these days. He loves his bikes and uh, when he's not in the Northwoods, of course. But, like, he, um, he like, pulls up. He's, like, wearing the shorts. I think he just got out of service. We're, like, at the bar. Just start talking, doing the thing. The other thing, too, is, like, um, I didn't do this setup right. Like, I literally just had a recorder. One, because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But, two... I did realize really early on, like for some people, this could be intimidating yeah. and people won't open up to you. Yeah. And so when you did that, people didn't even pay attention. They just thought you were, you know. And I, That's something I think about, actually. Like this light behind us, when, when our video guy was like, you guys need light. Moon. I'm like, well, do they make it any smaller? For the listener, we have like a, it's like a four foot diameter light in this tiny room. And I do, I do wonder, like, do you feel like you're in, being interrogated in here? Or are you comfortable? I mean, I'm comfortable okay. because, like, I, like I understand. No, right? yeah, you, you've heard it. I mean, We're, some people start off tighter and then they get looser over time. Exactly, or that is just definitely true. Yeah. So, you know, I basically like. Um, we're just talking or whatever. And I'd heard some rumors 
about this oyster bacon concept or whatever. And so I say, hey, I hear you're working on something new. I'm like, can you uh, talk about it? And he's like, yeah, I can talk about it. Again, I don't think Paul <laughs> thought anybody was going to listen to this outside of their And they probably weren't, to be honest. And he's like, yeah. So he starts telling me all about the publican. Nobody had broken the news. Again, I don't care about breaking news even to this day. But at the time, like, that was a very big thing because we were talking about Time Out was, uh, you know, Chicago Magazine. Like, there were 100 places for food news, and everybody was at each other's throats. And um, so I run the podcast. I get a phone call, like, within, like, two hours from uh, Heather Shouse from Time Out. And Heather's like, who are you? And I'm like, who are you? I'm your worst nightmare. <laughs> I'm like, because I, I didn't know food people at that yeah. time. And, and, and she's like, I'm from Time Out. And I was like, she's like, why did Paul tell you about this? And I was like, I don't know. Like, like I just asked. And she's like, okay. So then Time Out ran a little, like, the details of it. They said he talked about it on a podcast, but they didn't mention my podcast. Uh. So I'm not joking. Two hours later, same day, I get a call from Penny Pollock from Chicago Magazine. Penny's like, who are you? <laughs> and again, say, I go, you know, and she, but Penny did um, acknowledge the podcast name and then they, they put the details in Chicago Magazine. That's it was cool. like the Dish newsletter, I think, at the time. And so, um, but the, when I had left the job that I had left because I was like young at the time, one of the reasons I left that job was because I was fundamentally frustrated by working for other people who, like, if I had an opinion, I felt like I had to suppress my opinion because I was young and I didn't have a place. And obviously culture has changed a lot from those Mm -hmm. days, but that's how it was. But I always felt bad about it. I always felt like, you know, I repressed some part of what I thought would be good or would make me more creative or would make me better at my job. And that ended up me losing my job. So the promise I made to myself was, and this could probably why I'm so, like, overt in my writing, whether it's good or bad, but is, like, I'm always going to be honest because that is how I can feel that I'm I'm like honoring what who I am or whatever. And so I emailed both Heather and I emailed Penny and I said, "Hey guys, if you guys are going to like get details from stuff I report on, maybe we can work together." And so that led to work at Time Out with Heather Shouse. Mm. And um the Chicago Magazine story is more interesting, which is like so uh I was doing the Hungry Magazine podcast um I pitched it to Chicago Magazine. So I got invited into the... Chicago Magazine was in the tower back in the day. And, like, they had, like, the prime real estate, like, for whatever reason. Yeah. Like, so Dick Babcock was, like, the editor of Chicago Magazine. Dick Babcock, Babcock was, like, the Graydon Carter of Chicago, like, the Vanity Fair editor. <laughs> he, like, had, like, a, you know, a, a sweater tied, like, his, like, like a tennis sweater over his shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Like, a he character. had a Herman Miller Aaron chair. You know, he'd, like, sit back with his feet on the desk, and he had the view of the river and the Michigan Mag Mile, the whole thing. Like, it was like you were, like, in, in like, the New York Times, Abe Solzman, like, you know, the whole, it was like, oh, man, this is crazy. So Dick's like, tell me how this would work because it's, like, audio. And I was like, well, we could do these interviews. You guys can put them up on the website, and then we can excerpt the best Q&As in the magazine. I thought the meeting went really well. Didn't hear anything for a couple weeks. Jeff Ruby, who was the dining critic at the time, calls me up, and he's like, hey, Dick wants to do this. And I was like, oh, why did it take so long? And he's like, well, Dick said, you know what? I like what he was saying, but I don't understand any of it, so we're not going to do it. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he's like, but then a week later, the New York Times wrote about podcasting, and Dick called me into his office and was like, Jeff, isn't that what Mike was talking about? And he's like, let's do that. Wow. So that is how I got Chicago Magazine. Wow. 
Um, and then, you know, that led to like, you know, whatever else, you know, reader. I, I didn't do a lot for the reader because of course they had Sula and like, but I would do capsules and things like that. Um, but eventually I pretty much wrote for everybody. Um, you know, th again, if there's a theme here, cause now I'm, this is the first time I'm really nailing this theme down is so the Alinea cookbook, right? So that was an early opportunity, probably like 2006, 2007 when I worked on that. And, but I know that the re part of the reason I got that opportunity is because um, before I was a food writer or just about as I was becoming a food writer, because I was so passionate about food, um, they, the Chicago Tribune Sunday magazine, they used to do these really glossy magazine spreads, kind of like the New York Times weekend yeah, edition. Yeah, I remember. So there was an article on Alinea and Grant Ackett's, and it, it was very in-depth about, like, what he was doing, the cooking, the craft, and all that stuff. But the front cover was, like, him dressed up in, like, a tux with, like, his, he, like, slumped over in, like, a banquette, and, like, his, like, bow tie was askew, and there was, like, this super hot, super model, like, crouch down like near like i mean i'm I'm gonna be indelicate it looked like he had just gotten a bj and like i was like okay like i mean and i'm not prude at all but i'm also like for me like what i felt was like this was undermining the craft of what they were trying to do yeah so as a dumb stupid kid i wrote a letter to the tribune editors saying like hey I really appreciated the content of the piece, but I felt like you were undermining how serious Chef is with this like gla glamour, glossy photo. By the way, if this is an outtake you guys want to do, I actually can find that letter. To, like you could publish it in like we'll the IG. Put it on the, on yeah, the throwbacks, cool. yeah. But 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 so I I kind of <laughs> criticized that or whatever. I got an email from Nick Kakonis, and Nick was like, you know, he's like, I'm not entirely sure. I'm completely on board with what you said, but. What I recognize is that you care about our brand in the same way that we do. And so that was like the first time we established a relationship at all. Nice. And then, of course, I got to Grant on the podcast. And I remember distinctly like afterwards with, I was talking to Grant and Nick. And I was like, hey, guys, again, things I, I, I asked for that I don't know how I had the temerity to do so. I, I had no business doing it. I had no, I didn't go to journalism school again. I don't know why I knew that these things were important to do. But I said, hey, if you guys ever work on a cookbook, I'm sure you guys have your your pick of writers. But if I could be involved in any way, I would love to do it. Oh, nice. Didn't think about it. Then they started working on a cookbook. They worked with another writer for like a year, apparently. Don't know what happened. Whatever. Anyways, I get a call one day from Nick. And Nick is like, hey, he's like, let's say you had an opportunity to work on this cookbook. What would you do? And I literally, I mean, I, I don't think I put together a PowerPoint, but I wrote, I must have wrote like 10,000 words. And I was coming up with stuff like, because I was like, it's Alinea. So I'm like trying to figure out, could you do like a hologram of like, so I don't know. <laughs> thinking like outside like the scratch box. and sniff. Like I was yeah. writing and it was like 90% of it was probably throwaway garbage. But, <laughs> but it was like, I was trying to get yeah. the gig. And um, so a few more months passed, Nick calls and he's like, hey, can you come down to uh, Alinea? Right now, this is like two o'clock on like a Tuesday afternoon or something like that. And I'm like, sure. I didn't, again, I didn't go, why? I'm just like, he's, Nick called oh, me to come yeah. to Alinea. So I show up at Alinea. He's like, all right, here's the deal. He's like, we're working on this book. We've been working on it for a while. It's not working out. We're up against some deadlines because this was the, I think, the year that they had the China Olympics. And mm -hmm. so they were doing all this printing in Hong Kong where they were printing the cookbook. And everything got moved up because they had to print all the stuff for the Olympics. So, mm -hmm. and he's like, we got to get it done. And he's like, you're here. I know you can do it. I trust like your voice, like whatever. He's like, but the thing is, because we have to do it in a short time frame, he's like, 
I invited some other writers. He's like, so you're going to do the local stuff with Grant. And he's like, you'll get an essay in the book. And he's like, but there's going to be some other writers. I'm like, I don't care. Like, I'll do, like, whatever. And uh, he starts going. He's like, yeah, so it's Michael Rollman. He's like, it's Jeffrey Steingarten. <laughs> I'm like, oh, hey, which one does that belong? Yeah. I'm like, you sure about this? Like, you know? And uh, so that, that's, that's how the book happened. And wow. Yeah. So. That's very cool. <laughs> Nick politely declined to be on the podcast. Mm. <laughs> Calling a favor. That's interesting. Uh, no, he was, he was very polite. He just said, he kind of just explained that he, he'd already kind of told that story uh, in a handful of places on uh, Netflix. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> refer to that to uh, yeah. retell it here. Um, but if we can come to him with a fresh angle, perhaps holograms, yeah. audio. Holograms. <laughs> I mean, that's a thing. Yeah. If you can get him to talk about stuff, he's great. Oh, I, Obviously I would love the, to. He's yeah. yeah. Very I'll t- I mean, I, I mean, we're not best friends, but we talk once in a while. I'll, I'll put it in his ear that this is the <laughs> best podcast in Chicago. So. Oh, Thanks. Man. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, go ahead. Did you ever try to hand in stuff to the sun times that was like what you're writing for the hunger currently? I, so early on it, it whether it was the sun times, whether it was timeout, um, I tried to do not, it wouldn't be exactly like it would be today, but it definitely would have been different. Because I've never been, like, a big fan of, like, plate by plate. Like, I ate this, I ate that. I don't, yeah, I mean, I th- one sentence I remember just from the smokestack is about the Caesar salad. It was, like, its own paragraph. It was just, like, the Caesar salad was, like, yeah, under-seasoned, under-salted or something. Over, like. Overdressed oh, and under-garlic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because it's, like, and how much... Ones, that's all you need. Yeah, how much can you that. say about a Caesar salad? You know what I mean? That's, yeah. you know, that is what it is. Um, and, and so, like, it, it, it's, like... And also food descriptions, even when you're good at them or you think about them, they're still not that compelling. You know, it's like, is it good or is it not good? It's more about the story. So that's where I kind of focus. But you're right. And that's a great question. And and I would say invariably, like I said, when you're working for other people, they have tone, they have voice. That's the timeout voice. That's the red eye voice. You know, um, you know, when I went to the Sun-Times, that was a big negotiation, which is by that point in my career. I've been writing for like seven years. Yes, I recognize that it was a great opportunity, but I also was like, you guys have read me, right? Like, because you could tell I had a voice, even if it was reined in a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 they kind of were like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think they did, and I think they had intention, but ultimately they reined it in a lot, right? Because again, it's the Sun Times, and and I think that's what these people do. Like, I don't know. Like, I haven't really talked to Nick about it or Louisa. Um, I don't know if they're able to do whatever they want these days. I don't know if that has changed, but even at the Trib, you know, so to give you an example, when I worked at Red Eye, um, you know, I know that the managing editor of the Tribune would regularly send notes to the editor of Red Eye to send notes to my editor to tell me what to write or how to write it. Like, Hmm. Like, for example, like I literally, I got from the managing editor of the Tribune at the time, Hey, just get to the food. Like that was like the feedback, you know. And it's like, and that's fine. Like it is your publication, yeah. but also like, is that why the Trib and the Sun Times and these places have gone the way of the dinosaur? Because they kept sticking to these. Like they didn't want to have voice. They wanted to have the editorial vision of 1950 or 1970. And it's like that. The times are changing, you know. Um, so yeah, I absolutely did get. Uh, I've always got a lot of uh, pushback, of course. Um, I and even. Yeah, I mean, the thing is. 
I thought maybe this was unique to some certain publications I worked for because they weren't, I wouldn't, I don't know if it ever happened. Well, we had some interesting stories. So, for example, I'll tell you, and again, like I said, I'm an open book, so I'll talk about anything. Like, So when I was at Red Eye, um, I, so I respect Billy Deck for what he had been able to accomplish in his business. But Billy has a very particular style that doesn't work for everybody. It's not my style. Are you talking about the fedora? Yeah. Well, no, I like the fedora. It's fine. It's like it's. You more, mean style of his concepts? Uh, I was, I yeah. Like, like you know, yeah. like I'm I'm not the target demographic for I Chihuahua. I just am not. Um, although I love Taco Bell, so it's like it's hard, you know. But like, so, um, but. For example, I but I liked Bottle Fork, for example, which not surprising because Kevin Hickey was in that kitchen and Kevin's a really good cook. And, you know, I wrote like a really pretty good review about that. But I made some comment about how like Billy showed up in his fedora because he did that night like I was there. <laughs> and, and I think you got to acknowledge that happened. It wasn't like but Billy didn't like that. I said that, you know, or uh-huh. something. So he like complained to my editor and that didn't go anywhere or whatever. But then. I would write, like, there was a time where I was freelancing solely just as a food writer. I didn't do anything else. And I was writing at one point, like, 30 things a month because that's, we could talk about this job or this career. It's very difficult. It's as difficult as restaurant work sometimes, right? Not always living wage. And and so I was putting out 30 pieces. And I'm not talking about blog pieces, like, like constructed stuff. Some of it might have been bloggy. But um, one of the ways that you can make money as a freelancer is that you can, like, if I would review for Red Eye, I could then write another piece for uh, like a publication in Minnesota about the hot places to eat in Chicago. And I might mention like Bottle Fork because I just reviewed it. So Billy had seen like me writing about Bottle Fork again. So he then went to my editor and said, uh, Mike's plagiarizing the Tribune. And it was like, no, like I wrote the original piece and then I wrote another piece. It's the same writer. I didn't even use like the same text. So I couldn't. But so theoretically, I could plagiarize the Tribune by taking my text. Me, I don't know. Prosecute yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but it was where people were like, hey, it got to the point where it was like, hey, if you ever write about Billy, let me know. We should talk about, you know, like and it's like, why are you even why are we even having these conversations? So delicate. Yeah. 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 So. So, do you want to maybe take a second to explain to the listeners like how to how to read your writing and how to subscribe and all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, thehunger.substack.com. I mean, you can log in uh, or just go there, sign up, email. Um, email's free. I one of the things like I'll probably put out like maybe one free thing every couple months. Most of it's paid. Because what I've also learned, of course, which you guys have learned in restaurants and, and clothing stuff, you, you do have to charge for your work. And like, <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty a pretty good idea to put up a paywall. Again, and frankly, we see that even with the Trib. Like, they're still charging like a dollar, which isn't really a paywall. And so I don't think people take that seriously. They cancel it. They renew it. They're like finding ways to bypass a paywall because it's easy to do. And so they're not going to grow their subscriber base if they don't have that discipline. So I am disciplined. But I also feel like my goal is to deliver value for that dollar. I mean, you know, what is it? Like five bucks a month. It's like 50 bucks a year. Um, You know, I recognize 50 bucks a year could be a little pricey, but not, I mean, not based on what I I think I'm I'm providing in terms of reviews and things like that. So, you know, I I appreciate the support if people want to do that. And then you can find me from anywhere else on there through Instagram and stuff like that. What are the pros and cons of having a subscription service? Um, Well, the pros are I am the chief engineer 
cook and bottle washer, which means I can do whatever I want. Yeah. Um, you know, so, <laughs> so I like get, you're, this is the full expression of your voice. Like right. Like earlier, yeah. if, if I, you know, for Danny, like if I, if I want to do a Negroni pure Campari, I can do that, you know, it's not a Negroni anymore, <laughs> but it is, it is what it is. Um, or I, I know you like the gin forward. So, yeah. you know, that's your choice, right? Some people would be like, I don't know about that. Um, uh, so, but then they'd be wrong, but like, so, so, um, the cons are, I have to fight the voice in the back of my head that is like, this is a really good piece. This is a really good service piece. I want people to know about this restaurant. But if it's behind a paywall, only my paid subscribers get to see it, not everybody else, right? And like, you know, so I, I always have to be, I have to wrestle with my discipline to like open up things. That That's like one sort. It's not really a con, but it is a con. Yeah. You know, are those the pieces that you're willing, are those the ones that make it to the free, like teasers or things, you, things that you want to, get out there yeah everything's gonna get a teaser yeah. right um and some will get a longer teaser if i'm on the fence but i know i'm gonna have to keep it behind the paywall um you know like sometimes yeah you know like i feel again i really i think i'm fundamentally different than a lot of people in terms of the whole ethics thing and the whole like taking free meals and stuff like that this is really 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 important to me um and so like i just wrote this piece about like what what i think people should think about in terms of using PR, paid PR, paid influence. Um, and I felt like that was one that I should just be out there for everybody because it's like, you know, this is something that we should think about broader. Um, and it's not something that, you know, I, I need. It's not a service for my readers. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the discipline is the con. Um, and, and then, you know, of course, the other thing would be like, because of ethics, I have to think about, like, who subscribes, like, you know, I did go through a thing where it's like I get restaurant people, I get PR people. Uh, well, if people are paying five bucks or 50 bucks or whatever, do I have to like, am I influenced, you know, by that? And then, so what I've said to myself is mm. I've shut off the ability. I, I could look at it. I do not look at my subscriber list at all because I don't want to know who actually I know that sounds stupid, but it's like I don't want to know that like some chef is paying. Because then in the back of my head, I'll be like, oh, they're paying. Yeah, like, what? You subconsciously. Know? Yeah, but so those things become challenges, which mm -hmm. is, but the other thing is I recognize that as a sole proprietor of this thing, like I have to promote myself, which means I got to do Instagram. I got to do social. Got to do podcasts. I got to do podcasts. Um, like, and so then it's like, well, how does that interact with like, you know, if I'm like promoting myself on Instagram and I do a reel that's related to a restaurant review. These are the things I think about. Maybe I'm crazy, but it's like, well, I just did a reel for this restaurant. If it's good and people read it, I'm exposing. And that's kind of what I want to do with the review. But then is it also like, did I create a paid commercial? Like, I don't know what the right answer is. I'm not like wedded to this, but I, these are things I didn't have to think about before because there was always like sort of a separation, you know? Right. So, um... This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Stock Manufacturing, makers of fine hospitality workwear. You obsess over the details in your space, so why stop at your staff's uniforms? Stock has something for every aesthetic. From fine dining to a corner cafe, they've got you covered. Choose from in-stock ready-to-wear options or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. So how do you think the advent of influencers has affected food media? Yeah, that's a great question. I, so here's the thing. Nothing is absolute. There are good PR people. There are good influencers. Um, but I do think that 
influencer culture has promoted um, a level of abuse in, in, in the industry um, and in, in all industries. I'm sure you see it in clothes, right? Or like, you know, like that, that kind of stuff. Like um, you have a very big entitled pay for play culture of like, give me free this and I'll do this. Yes. You know, I pay for this, I'll do this. And so, you know, and, and what it does is it spins off more people. It's like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you see all these people doing it, getting their free stuff, you know, it's like, and you see like the big guys, like whatever, Danny Mac, you know, with he's like looking at these influencers driving G-Wagons and they're on like yachts and you're like, yeah. I want that too. Which of course, <laughs> none of them are ever going to get there, but it, they, they try the low level version of that. Even and, the guys who are there aren't there. Yeah. It's all smoke and mirrors. Yeah, right. We That's the other thing about influencer culture, even at certain, what we would perceive as amazing scale, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Like, you know, we could talk about my subscriber numbers and things like that. But what, what, what I know about my thing is that, like, I have less numbers, but they're paying numbers. So I can put a number value to it. And, and is it more valuable or less valuable? You know, I don't know what my equivalency would be like, but I would say that I fundamentally believe that my value in terms of paid subscribers relative to somebody with, like, 50,000 Instagram followers on, like, a random food thing that's clearly related to pay for play and stuff like that, mm -hmm. I probably can get more people into your restaurant. Like, yeah. you know, like, when I wrote about Warlord, I know for a fact, I, I don't want this to sound like bragging, but I do know, like, one of the things I did was I, like, emailed a bunch of people on my list that have been, like, really long time people. I was like, I'm going to drop this review tomorrow, but I really appreciate the support you guys have given me over time. You should go here this weekend because I think Tribune's going to write mm -hmm. about it because I heard Nick was in there. And I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I just saw it today. And, and yeah, exactly. It was this morning. And um, I was like, it's going to be tough to get into, so go this weekend. And I remember like getting like texts from people, and I was like, I know in those two days after I dined, there were at least 12 people in that. And, you know, and so like, there, but back to the whole influencer thing is like, yeah, I mean, it, so it creates a culture of um, uh, cannibalism, I mean, like where these people are like trying to take stuff. That's the other thing about it is like, it's we could, whether I'm, giving you a positive or negative feedback, the one thing I don't want to do is take dollars from people. And I understand restaurants and bars have marketing dollars for these efforts or whatever. But I mean, so many of these places are just opening up on a shoestring and they need every dollar they can have. Mm -hmm. And I, like, I don't want to go so far to say that my writing is art, but to me, it is my art. And, and I know that I want to be compensated for that in terms of value if I bring value. And I feel the same way about restaurants, which is to say, like, if you're doing this beautiful – you can do it for friends and family. That's fine. I get that. That's a, that's a different exchange. But when you're a third-party person asking a restaurant to give you something, yeah. you're asking them to give you your, their hard work. And, their, and the other thing, too, is, like, what we also know about this is that these people come in. Like, let's say they go to, like, a higher-end meal. They sit there with the whole service team for like an hour or two hours or three hours. And some of those people, because they ask for the free meal, they're not even doing the thing where it's like, wait, these people don't get tipped. Like, or like, even if in the few instances where I've taken a free meal, because for whatever reason, right? So for example, I, I'm always fully disclosed about where I have taken free meals. And mm -hmm. so I'll always say it in a piece or whatever. So for example, I'm, I have a relationship with uh, Curtis and Mike from ever. And, and I've known those guys for a long time. I came in with my wife for our like a 20th wedding anniversary. 
Mike at the end of the meal is like, you guys are good. And I'm like, no, no, mm-hmm. no. You know, I'm like, are you, you know, and like when I didn't want to take it too far. I was like, Mike wants to do this as a gift. I'm not going to get into the big fight, but I'm like, I want to tip. You know, I want to make sure that we, you know, and I'm always asking for like, can I tip even in those cases? Because, oh, yeah. you know, like, again, you're taking away from people who are working in this industry and their yeah. hard work. <clears throat> and it might not seem like it if you're the one, but for every one of you, there's a thousand of you who are trying to do this. And so, you know, and, and so then it becomes a bigger dollar number or it, and the thing is, it, as a, as a restaurant owner or a bar owner or whatever your business is, you're also like doing the calculation of like, do I need these people? And you may not, but you may feel you need these people because you don't want to say no to an opportunity that could be marketing. And so I understand that tension too. So it just becomes this really, really bad cycle that generally is like couched in like, um, uh, people's insecurity and weakness not in celebrating great work and and so so that that's how i feel like influencer but there are good influencers so somebody who's listening to this <laughs> my case all no i don't there are good influencers but like do you want to list a couple that you follow and like uh that's a great question um i know i'm listening You're calling his bluff <laughs> well yeah no i mean that's i mean that's the thing it's like who do I, who am i influenced by that i think is doing like a really good job that's kind of i will say this I do not follow Shy City Foodie because he's an influencer. Yeah. However, I do talk to Seth Marcus, who does Shy City Foodie, quite regularly about these issues. And what I will say about Seth is that Seth is open to my point of view, and I'm open to Seth's point of view, and we've debated this a lot, and I really appreciate that about him. And, and, I, and I don't know Seth's complete business. I don't know if he's good or bad or, like, whatever because I don't talk to restaurateurs about this stuff. Um, but what I would say is that, like, if the things we talk about are true, then I at least respect from, like, maybe the level that Seth's coming at it from, um, you know, relative to other people. All right. Before we get to the gratuity round, yes, is there sir. anything that you want to cover that we have not already? Me? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm more interested in what you guys are interested in. But, um, I, you know, I talked to myself. I did, want to, I did want to ask about your golden crock. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please yeah, yeah. tell us that story. Yeah, so this was something I was, somebody was asking me about the other day because I remember it was like a thing that happened. And then I was like, oh, this would be a good topic for us to talk about because I've never really talked about this. Because, you know, again, one of the things, oh, I mean, if we go back to the question you just asked about, like, one of the cons of doing what I do is that, like, when you are your own thing, like, the only form of feedback, of course, is in, like, paid subscriptions or not paid subscriptions or whatever. So as a writer, of course, you always have self-doubt or a creator of any kind. And so you're always looking for feedback. And so one of the cons, of course, is that my only feedback mechanism is, is a, a subscription, which can't always, I mean, sometimes there's comments and things like that, or I, I get emails. But, um, you know, the point is there's a lot of self-doubt in this occupation. And so it does help to have, like, way stars along the way that tell you you're on the right path or whatever. And so um, back in 2008, um, as part of like the South Beach Food and Wine Festival, uh, Michael Ruhlman and Anthony Bourdain were really good friends. They decided to do these like like fake James Beard Awards called the Golden Clog Awards because, <laughs> you know, Mario Batali wore orange clogs. So they were making fun of that. But they literally they got clogs like Crocs 
and they spray painted them gold and they made like legit like like awards or whatever right and they had all these some of them were pretty straightforward like best restaurant and stuff but some of them were like tongue-in-cheek like you know like writers who suck and like you know where one of them was like the writer who gets it and so i was in the category it was like me um pim uh she used to have this blog she's from california she runs uh a Ken Cow Thai restaurant in San Francisco, which is really good. Um, and then um, Bill Buford, who wrote, like, yeah, maybe, he, yeah, one of the best. so good. Yeah. Oh, but, man. So before I became a food writer, yeah. I read Heat. I was so blown away by it. Yeah, that's so good. I, I knew that I was, like, transitioning into the idea of being a food writer. Yeah. I wrote literally a list of 30 questions to ask Bill Buford if I met him ever <laughs> about Heat. And, like, I never got the chance. But it's funny. I exchanged a Twitter with him once where I said, I told him the story. And he's like, dude, let's do the interview. And we still never, we've never done it. But um, so I'm in a category with a guy who's an absolute genius. And and Pim was really good at what she did, too. And um, so apparently, like, I won the golden clog for the food writer that gets it from <laughs> Anthony Bourdain and Michael Rowland. Now, I'm going to bring my ego down a little bit because I know that a week before they asked Bourdain to handicap these awards. And when he got to that category, he's like, he didn't know who I was. So, it, it, but Michael Ruhlman did know who I was, which I know for a fact. So um, I don't know if it meant anything, but it meant something to me at that moment when yeah, I got it. It's awesome. Validation. And the other thing that was crazy about this is like, so I asked, I was like, I said to Ruhlman, I was like, I saw those golden clogs. Were those like real? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. Who made them for one of everybody. And he's like, he's like, we're going to get it to you, like, because he emailed me that I won. And he's like, we'll get it to you, like, we'll send it in the mail or whatever. And he's like, but he's like, we're going to party in South Beach tonight. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, have fun, like, whatever. So, um, like, a week later, Michael Roman emails me. He's like, I got bad news. And I'm like, what's that? He's like, Bourdain, like, lost all the golden clogs over a boat drunken, like, that <laughs> night. When they, so, so, like, so the award never came, but I got it spiritually, so it's fine. It washed ashore somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Cuba. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. Um, real quick on uh, feedback you've gotten from, subscribed, uh, from subscribers, how, what is the general feedback, or what are people writing to you about? Is it um, feedback on the pieces? Is it things that they want to hear about? Or is it tips? What, what's your interaction like with your yeah, followers? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I will say, it's not surprising that because I do emphasize that I try to do these things anonymously, pay my own way, um, that some segment of the readership feels like that's important and that, you know, when they see those things or read those things, they reinforce that that's important to them as well, which I, I like and I, I, you know, I appreciate that. Um, you know, some of it's like, hey, I really like this line or, you know, um, some of it's like, you know, I try to sometimes like work in stuff like, you know, I have an F1 uh, uh, newsletter that I do too, mm -hmm. uh, Formula One. I'm a huge Formula yeah, One fan. Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, <laughs> you know, like I wrote recently about my dad's health problems and like I resyndicated that on the food one because I just thought it was more general about, you know, your relationship with family and stuff. And so, um, you know, people were like, oh, you know, the things that you're open about, like that that also resonated with me or got me through mm, like yeah. a thing. You know, so it's, it's all sometimes, you know, I do like I will send out emails to people um, saying like, hey, because I am open. While it is my thing, I want it to. I what I do fund my goal or my dream for this thing is because I do recognize that there is a dearth of food writing in 2023 in Chicago. There is some, but if you look back again, back to when we were talking about 2005 when I started, 
everybody was doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, my joke is, but it's true, is I'm the last Sun-Times food critic. Because that, I was. Like, yeah. they killed the section, that was it. Um, so there is, you know, and they're starting to do a little bit of experimentation again there. Um, but, like, we, you know, Tribune is down to Louisa and, and, and Nick, basically. And Louisa and Nick are mostly focusing on reviews. Nick does some of the good stuff Nick does with, like, the taco crawls and stuff like that. But, you know, what we got Eater. Um, you know, then you do have the influencers and you do have some of that, like whatever, but it is an ecosystem. It, 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 good media. Like if you look back to 2005, one of the fundamental reasons I think that Chicago was on the map as the global food city it was, was because there was so much echoing of media celebrating this Mm -hmm. thing in waves. And now that we don't have that, I think it becomes harder for us to get on that national radar sometimes. I mean, I know, of course, social media can echo that as well. Um, but again, when you, 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 you know, journalism's an intermediary, influencing's an intermediary. Um, but I don't know. I, I still tend to um, think that sometimes the media thing can be a little more objective. It can be subjective as hell, too, obviously. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but but so my thing is with the hunger is like I want it to be for the community as much as I want it to be a place for me to write about this stuff. So I do ask people. I'm like, what are you guys looking for? Like, what do you want from your narratives? Like, what do you you know? Do you want more interviews? Those kind of things. I mean, if you guys got the feedback, I would love it. Like, what do you want to read about? Because I know how serious you guys are about this, uh, based upon this podcast. You know, like I, yeah. like I'll say this to anybody who's listening. I'm not just saying it because I'm across from you. Like, you guys very much do what I was doing in 2005. Frankly, you do it better. Like, um, and... Because uh, we know what podcasts are now. <laughs> that's that's probably the only reason. It, yeah, you well, paved the way. Yeah. But, but I, like, I stopped watching food, like, TV. Stopped listening to food podcasts for probably, like, seven or eight years. Because it's like, you can only take some... Like, my thing about Top Chef is it's like, it's season 23, and it's like they still didn't bring a dessert dish that they could make because they're a savory chef. And it's like, have you not watched like all 46 seasons mm-hmm. of Top Chef? Like, <laughs> and, and so it's like it, it, I stopped like even watching that stuff, even though I'm passionate about it because it just didn't speak to me. And then stuff like what you guys are doing is like kind of reignited that passion. And I kind of wanted to be able to do that, too, for other people who might want to write about food or just learn yeah. about food or celebrate this community. I, I mean, you know, if we had a parting thought here, which, you know, I legitimately want everything I put in my mouth to be four stars or whatever that is. I don't even like star ratings. That's why I don't do them. Um, Cause I think it's better to talk about things qualitative or qua- qualitatively than yeah. quantitatively. Um, but the point is I want everything to be great. I want everybody in Chicago to be great. Like mm-hmm. that's the goal. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it if we can, if I can create something that celebrates that stuff and brings that stuff up, and it brings us up to that level, you know, I, that's that would be like the biggest reward. So nice. Yeah. I had one other question I want to throw in before the gratuity round. Has a restaurant ever changed your mind after a review, where you were like, I had it completely wrong? A restaurant for better or for worse? Yeah, I guess, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't think a restaurant has ever changed my mind, but what has happened is that. Um, so the other thing too is, like I said, I don't, I never, if, what, I, what I would love to do, this would be a dream for like the hunger. And I've always pitched this idea to chefs and like talked about it and nobody's ever taken me up on it. But if I write a review of somebody and it's not like a great review, 
but somebody has a distinct point of view that's different, like the mm. chef or the owner, and they want to dispute that or talk about that, I would love to debate that on a podcast or let them write their own response essay because it is – I'm just one voice. I am yeah. not – anything i'm not absolute That'd i'm not be interesting. like like the other thing is people are always like well uh, what makes you qualified to be a food critic absolutely nothing i mean i am passionate about it i read about it i study it like i do have some experience in those things but what i fundamentally believe is that if you pay attention to what's in front of you and you react to it honestly you have the makings to be a food critic yeah. so like what i would love to do is like have that kind of exchange so where a chef is like you know, hey, here's why we did that or why we didn't do mm -hmm. that or whatever. Or a bottle. Yeah, exactly. Um, so if anybody's listening and they want to do that, let's do that. Um, I'd always pitch this idea back in the day was when I was at Red Eye and Phil was at Trib. I was like, let's do me and Phil go to the same restaurant. And we look at it from two yeah, different voices and really... two different perspectives. Yeah, that's cool. Phil never wanted to do it. That's what I was told. Huh. So, um, But I would have loved to have done that. So, um, but, but what does happen, of course, is I do get those phone calls. So... Like, call from Donnie when it's good. I've had calls from Donnie when it's bad. Um, Jason Vincent's another guy that I've had. I know we're just down the street from him. Yeah. Jason Vincent is absolutely one of my favorite chefs in all of Chicago. Um, you know, he, uh, I, I, I absolutely adore Giant. I love Nightwood. Obviously, I loved him at Lula. Um, I did not love Chef Special. And, you know, Jason can talk about it. Like, Jason and I exchanged texts for like eight hours. I don't even, I honestly don't think he, Jason even likes me anymore, but I'll talk to Jason about it all day. And it's like, mm -hmm. like I said to Jason then, I was like, it's not personal. I'm, I love what you do. And you, I just felt like you didn't hit it here. And I think he got it, but then I've heard maybe he didn't get it. So it, it is what it is. You yeah. Know? By but, definition, taste is subjective. Yeah. And nothing is personal. 100%. Cool. All right. Now I'll sit in with the gratuity around. Oh, no. Michael. <laughs> this what? thing is, I've heard this a hundred times. I'm still scared. This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Bronca USA. Question, Danny. What's your question, Tim? <laughs> My question is, how would you categorize Fernet Bronca? I would consider it an after-dinner drink or a digestive. It is an Amaro, so Amaro just means a bittersweet herbal Italian liqueur. Okay, and in, so you would use it, you would drink it after a meal? I would drink it after a meal, uh, one that is either, you know, particularly heavy, rich, to help aid in digestion, or just because I think after a meal it, it helps cap things off to have something that's like a little bitter, a little sweet. So it, uh, yeah, so it sparks digestion, you're saying? I so, think so. It's so if you have an upset tummy, yeah. you're reaching for the Fernet. It's the digestion Kickstarter. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. I don't know that I've ever used it in that way, but I will now that I know. Yeah. How do you usually use it? Shoot. Ripping shots, man. <laughs> ripping multiple shots back to back. Yeah. You know, beer in a shot. Love that. I think that's uh, it's one of the options at um, Sporties for the yeah. low life. You get a high life and you get a shot of either bourbon or uh, Fernet, right? Yeah, it's the industry handshake. Yeah. All right. All right, cool. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> I'm not even going to ask the questions. You can just <laughs> yeah, answer yeah, still. Yeah. Uh, but what's your death row meal? So... This is funny because I know this. So, I, of course, like everybody else, I could list off 100 dishes, right? But I remember, like, maybe, like, so 
I said my dad went through some health scare. He's doing great now. Um, but like legitimately thought maybe he was going to die. Mm-hmm. And so once we got past that, like I remember we were, uh, my wife and I were eating Thai food. And so I'm like, pans down. I die. You're still here. The wake is Thai food. It's going to be Thai food. And, and more specifically, it's going to be crispy rice salad. Uh, I think Nam Khao Tat. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, locally, my favorite has always been Rainbow. Yeah. Um, but I they don't deliver it anymore, which makes me really sad. Yeah. So, like, um, I have to, like, go find it in other places. It's not as good. It's still good. But that is the dish, like, hands down. Um, and, and then, you know, of course, it's probably just going to be a Thai meal in general, right? So, you know, we're going to do, like, Isan sausage, like, mm-hmm. you know, the Thai sausage. We're going to do... From Aroy. Yeah. I love Arroy. I love Opart. Opart is killing it right now. Yeah. Danny was at Arroy last night. I was at Arroy last night. Nice. Having Isan sausage. Nice. Um, you know, uh, Mike Sula, uh, give Mike credit. Like, first time I went to Rainbow with Mike, Mike's like, crispy noodle. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, trust me. And then it's like they deep fry the noodle on a pad CU. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what is this? Mm-hmm. Like, yes. I've never heard of this before. So, I mean, Mike changed my life with that one. Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be a Thai meal straight up. Who's your favorite food writer? Who's my favorite food writer? Well, I will say this. I've already mentioned him 400 times. Like when I came up, uh, Mike Sula for sure. Like, and still like anytime Mike writes something, I'm going to read it. Mm-hmm. I, I respect him so much. Um, there's a guy who is not a food writer who inspired me a lot in Chicago, a guy named Ray Pride film writer for the uh for new city raised to do like food pieces he did this seminal piece about the opening of blackbird like in 2005 or something Hmm. and i remember reading that and going oh my god and like so ray certainly has influenced the way that i've done profiles Hmm. based upon that not you know like i of course like when i was coming up like um outside of chicago people um i really loved um you know uh just, you know, like the greats, you know, so to speak. But like, um, you know, of course I was into Ruth Reichel and like those folks. Um, Jim Harrison spoke to me a lot because Jim Harrison's from Michigan. And, you know, he's like, it's funny thing I always think about Jim Harrison is like, Jim Harrison wrote Legends of the Fall, which is like the Brad Pitt movie. So you like, don't think of him as like a food writer, but he was an incredible food writer. Like his stuff, um, you know, he and then he always used to do these things where like he'd write in his essays about how like he invited like Daniel Ballou and like Mario Batali and all these people. And I recognize Mario's canceled for anybody out there. I just, but this is what it was back in the day. And, and like they'd gather in like his cabin in Michigan for like a weekend and everybody would bring like pheasant and like, you know, like all kinds of like exotic ingredients, like black garlic and like cases of wine. And they just party for like four days. And it's like, I'm like that, that's, that's like, <laughs> yeah, I never done dream. that by the way, but yeah. that that's like a thing I would love to have emulated. So um, you know, I mean, of course I love Bourdain. I love, you know, but like everybody loves Bourdain. So it's like, you know, and uh, for good reason, but yeah. you know, yeah. All right. What's your favorite hidden gem restaurant? I well, feel like we should specify at the moment, unless you have something ready. Well, I'm sure you could go deep on this. Yeah. Well, so I think, I mean, I, my question is, is anything a hidden gem in 2023? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, that makes it harder. Yeah. Right. But, but I would say this. So because I know it's a hidden gem, and it's hidden gem for some reason, a lot of obvious reasons, which is to say, like, so 
I live in, uh, I live over by uh, um, Own and Engine, that little pocket yeah. over there on Western and Diversity. So there's a Chinese restaurant on the corner called Lee's Chop Suey. It has been there forever. In fact, we I know we can not call it a, a not a hidden gem because Pat Bruno wrote about it in like 1980-something. <laughs> but it has been around so long that people have forgotten about it again, and it just exists there on a corner. So what it is, of course, is it's an American Cantonese Chinese restaurant. Yeah, the uh, I feel like the lo mein or the chop, whatever with the barbecue pork is one of my favorite things. Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing is there's a hundred of these places in yeah. Chicago, right? Like Shanghai and on Damon. Like, I, I mean, I could probably make a list of them. You know, Orange Garden, you know, like oh, whatever. And Orange Garden, of course, is known very well because it's got that neon sign that got sold to Billy Corgan and, you know, was on the main strip. But like... Nobody goes to Lee's. Like, I live by Lee's, like, a block away. I walk by Lee's every single day. No one's in there. It's 99% takeout business, including mine living a block. I've yeah. never stepped <laughs> foot inside. But I have eaten there more than any restaurant in Chicago. And it's not just out of convenience. It is out of, for American Cantonese, they do the egg roll, the peanut butter and the egg roll, which oh, everybody yeah. by this point knows is the thing. I think I did an egg roll coral. Like I used to do what Nick used to do before Nick did it. Mm. Like back in 2005, in, in time out, I would go eat like 30 egg rolls and then do a top 10 ranking, those kind of things. And so um, that was like probably a top five egg roll back then. Like Cow Cow on Cicero was like the egg roll. It was like unbelievable. But this is a really one of the top egg rolls in Chicago, I think. Um, you know, their uh, fried rice is very good. Um, although I think that Three Little Pigs and Henry is like the, the fried rice standard maybe right now in Chicago. Um, Mongolian uh, barbecue, or not Mongolian barbecue, Mongolian beef. beef. Yep. Like, so some of the stand, sesame chicken, not everything, right? They still have the worn piece size menu, so you got to know what to pick. But like, I, I mean, I've literally eaten there like 500 times. And, and so, and most people aren't like, oh, what's that place? But it's like, if you're like, I want good Chinese takeout or I want to even, I'm, I need to step foot in there. We should all go like, yeah. Yeah. just to see what it's <laughs> yeah. like. You know what they do that I love? They still make the real plum sauce and they put oh. it in solo cups. So you don't get like the water packets or the, yeah. you know, they, unfortunately they do the hot mustard packets. I'm like, I wish they did the, they might do prepared inside. I don't know. Um, but I do like that they still do that. And like, we even like, save the plum because it's like this stuff is so good i'll just like dip anything in it <laughs> so we get like extra um so that that i just you know and the thing is um it could be like just me but then like you know i know you guys know dave andrews good life pr dave um you know was looking for a chinese spot and i turned it on to him like two years ago and it's like the only place he orders from now and he doesn't even live nearby so once you find a good chinese spot you yeah. stay loyal you stick with yeah. it yeah it's like pizza you know we talk about the pizza cognition theory how like what you grew up is always a standard yeah chinese american food is like what is like near your house that you always order from but yeah all right what is your favorite pizza in chicago so this brain, I hate to be difficult with all this stuff, no, okay. but like, so this is like the way, like, so I have this theory about, um, like a lot of people like to say, so the default answer is I can't answer that question because there's so many different styles. So then you go, well, what style? And so like a lot of people like to be like, there's no like great, you know, like you can't compare styles. And I am of the fundamental opinion that like gun to your head, 
You have to choose one, irrespective of style, whether it's burgers or pizza or whatever, you can still do it. Yeah, if you'd only have one for yeah, the rest of like your life. If you did like a round robin of burgers, you could get to number one, even yeah. if there's thick burgers or whatever. Like, yeah, I know you guys always talk about the Royale and, you mm-hmm. know, the Loyalist burger. And, mm-hmm. and, and so for me, so my qualifier, my only qualifier is that I grew up in Detroit. So, you like so Detroit style. yeah, so I like for me, it's almost always, always, always going to be Detroit style. Okay, now I'm screwing up here. I'm going to say there's two choices. So, <laughs> Detroit style, because I am a Detroit style homer. I think the U.S. Pizza Cup winner from Paulie G's, Derek Tongue's mm, Pizza, yeah, is the best Detroit style pizza in all of Chicago. Um, just even he's got the bacon jam on there because you got the sweet and the ricotta, so that creaminess. But you also get, like, some acid in there, you know, from the sauce. And, like, it's balanced. It's sweet, spicy, savory. You got the cheese halo, the caramelized nuttiness. I mean, what's not to love, right? So Mm -hmm. from a Detroit-style perspective, I love it. I have become, like, a huge, huge fan of George's Deep Dish on, uh, like, it's it's basically in Evanston. It's, like, Mm. on, like, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, like, I want to say, like, so you guys probably know Millie's, right? Yeah. I love Millie's. I think Millie's. So, gun to the head, I think George's is better than Millie's, which is not a slag on Millie's. I think Millie's is some of the best pizza that's coming Same out there. Same style, right now. though. It was a little bit different. It's it. They're both pan style, mm-hmm. but George's is like, if I had to describe George's, like I don't know if you guys remember a time where Pizza Hut was kind of good. Mm-hmm. Like, do you remember? Like, there was a time where Pizza Hut was really kind of good. Like, I'm not saying it was like the best ever, but it wasn't what we have today. Mm-hmm. And and and. Pizza Hut was trying to go for something, and they almost got there in the 80s or 90s, but they didn't quite get there. George's is like the Pizza Hut dream imagined in like full artisanal form, because it's it's like that bready edge crust on a pan, thick, but not too thick. But then inside, you got the bubble on the thing, so you're like, this is real bread. Like, I'll eat it, not just because it's there, but because it's like legit. Um... You know, all the ingredients are, like, fresh. They're, like, you know, you're not going to get canned mushrooms. You're going to get real roasted mushrooms. You know, even the sausage, like, I, I've never talked to him. I don't know if he's using anachini like everybody else or whatever, but the sausage is thicker. It's got, like, a nice zest to it. The whole package is just – and so, like, for me, it's, like, if I'm, like, just, like, I want to give myself, like, a gift or, like, whatever. Um, you know, and the thing is, too, he limits because it's him. I don't know if he's got maybe one or two other people. He will, he, like, you go on talk and you choose pickup uh, or you choose delivery and a, and a window. And when they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. And, and so that makes it difficult because mm-hmm. you got to plan ahead. Although I would say during the week, you're, if, if you call it like an hour before, you can probably get it. On a Friday or Saturday, you're going to have to probably think about two to three days out, which isn't terrible. You're just going to have to do that. Um, but, but that's cause he's making them all too, right? Yeah. Like, he's not like, oh, I got three other guys and they may or may not think like I do. So that goes a long way towards like that mm. consistency. We got to get there. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite fast food? Oh God. So that this one I like. It's so Taco Bell. Yeah, yeah, well, the obvious answer is a In-N-Out burger stuffed in between a Culver's Deluxe. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I've learned. Right. This is what I've learned from <laughs> listening to this podcast. Of, I don't, no. Um, I, I mean, I love both those. Um, I, I I understand why both of you like each of those individual ideas. Um, I'm a stan of both. Um, I, you know, I, if I had to pick one burger, like fast food-ish, um, I am a huge fan of Shoops. 
Yeah. But Shoops is... but Shoops in Warsaw, Indiana, they had a lo- it was like a legit diner Shoops like in a car, mm. like not like, you know, like a built-out location. And they, you know, the thing about Shoops is you got that lacy edge where it's like griddled so it gets crispy. Theirs was like perfect. Like sometimes you get that in Hammond, sometimes you don't. Um, this place, every time I stop there, unfortunately, the Warsaw location is closed now. So mm. I'm gonna have to go re- uh, reconnoiter the shoops. like the. the I just went to Region, right? I just went to the Region. Region's based that was on a solid shoops, burger. Apparently. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've heard you guys talk about that. that. I need to go. Yeah. 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 That was a, John Shields' recommendation. Yeah, I do want to clarify for the listener that is in Roscoe Village. He okay. said it was in Ukrainian Village, and I got some texts about that. So it is in. <laughs> it's yeah. on. It's right there on Roscoe. Like a little okay. bit west of Damon, cool. but, but solid burger. Yeah, but I mean, so the, but the fast food thing is like, I, like I said, for me, franchise food and uh, fast food, I like a lot because for me, it's like it is a vacation or a holiday because I'm always eating really well and I get to eat like the greatest food in the world all over the place. I travel for my day job, which means I get to eat outside Chicago a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, but like also because I'm traveling a lot, like, of course there's road stops. Like, um, you know, I wish I was Rick Bayless and I never got a delivery pizza, but unfortunately <laughs> we're going to send a pizza. To Did you guys got to do, he seemed really upset that you guys would do that. And I was like, come on, <laughs> you guys got to slap do an it. injunction on us. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I did a podcast with Rick and back in the day. And like, I remember asking him like, what do you like pack for road trips or something like that? Like, where do you stop on road trips? And he's like, I don't, it's like, I pack my own sandwiches. <laughs> and he also said he doesn't like, he didn't say, I don't think he said this to you guys, but like, he doesn't like cold food. So oh, like really? he likes warm food. So like, mm. that's what he doesn't even like sandwiches because that's like cold food. So that like, this is something huh. I remember. So no gazpacho for Rick Bayless. Right. Right. Maybe he makes an exception for the Spanish or the Mexican. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so my thing, uh, so if I like one, if, if we just were like going to have to go the one answer, I'm going to say the Arby's beef and cheddar, um, with curly fries, like, cause one in Chicago, we have a dearth of Arby's. Like there's that one, like under the like L track downtown. There used to be like a secret one in the Thompson center, but then I th- yeah. think most of them are suburban Yeah, yeah. and that's it. I so, can't think of one. So it's like when I'm on the road trip, it's like, well, I can get Culver's and I can get like McDonald's anywhere. Like I can't get Arby's unless I go out to like Skokie. So like I, that's like the, the default I'm going to go, I'm going to go with that. But like, um, I, well, a topic that's come up on this podcast quite a bit. I concur completely, and I had this thought before I'd ever heard it on the podcast. The McDonald's on Lake Street is the best McDonald's in... There's no... I don't know why. I will tell you I had a bad experience there over the weekend. Oh, no. Wow. But, uh, it, it's okay. I'm not yeah, I'm not holding it against them. I'll go back. Did you go during the day or at night? No, it was late night. Okay, because see, that's what I, late, late night is usually where I'm there, mm. and it's like... For Usually late night, it's garbage, right? Because it's like the shift that like people don't want to do, but like... The fries are always like fresh and hot. The fries like, were good. Yeah. The what burger was good. You know, I had a bad burger. I had a bad burger. It was my own fault. Why? And I may have gotten some nuggets too that weren't pretty. Wait, why good. was the burger bad? Um, or why was it your own? It fault? was just it was just the regular cheeseburger, and normally I would have gotten like a uh, like a quarter yeah, pounder like a quarter pounder. Yeah, yeah, probably. Okay. Well, I mean, you but know, like, I was like, it's either the quarter pounder or it's the nugs and, and a, cheese. a cheeseburger, and that was my mistake. I should have just gone with the. So, I tried to get clever. So I think this is really an interesting thread because I think multiple people, multiple chefs have talked about this, right? Like Posey, like likes it. There's yeah, some mm-hmm. other ones. Um, 
I talked to you, I'm friends with Muser. Muser loves that McDonald's as well. Yeah. Obviously, because it's right over by Ever, you know? And, yeah. and, and so, um, you know, which I think it's funny that all these really awesome industry people are going to that McDonald's. <laughs> it's so funny. You got, you got John Shieldser, you got Curtis Duffy, you got <laughs> the Posies. You've got, uh, well, now there's the uh, small Cheval there. And then you got McDonald's right there. But the thing about McDonald's for me is I'm a Nuggets guy, too. And my my move since I've been a kid was, if we tie back into the egg roll, is replicating the egg roll saucing. So I get hot mustard and sweet and sour, double dip the, the nugget in both. So it's like an egg roll with the, the mustard sauce and the duck sauce. And um, But the thing about Chicago, for some reason, the hometown of McDonald's, hot mustard is not in this market. So it's in every market in America, at least that I've been able to discover. Hmm. So because I travel, I bootleg, I always bring hot mustard back from Ohio or Michigan. I didn't even think about the hot mustard yeah. because I'm always in Chicago when I'm eating it. Yeah, weird. So, 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 but I have heard that Hamburger University does have oh, hot okay. mustard. So, I'll check on that for so, you. Yeah. I live right there. Yeah. So that, that's a pro tip. If that's true, that's great. And so I don't have to bootleg it anymore. I just was in mm-hmm. Montreal. I brought back hot mustard in French. So it's got the French trans. It tastes the same. Um, but I always, I literally always keep them in my car in the, like the glove box because you never know yeah. when you're going to go in on a nugget run. Yeah. Um, or like, you know, I know you guys got younger kids, but I once had younger kids. So we always had the dino nuggets and the, you know, or whatever you're using, you know? And so um, I know you got like the high end dog food. So maybe you got the high end dog He's the one with the kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 you know, maybe you, you, you have a higher nugget threshold than I do but like um uh you know so I would even dip like the dino nuggets and the stuff you know um so but yeah you know like but Taco Bell of course too right like it's unimpeachable I am really big on the Enchirita right now I saw that yeah like like the so I was a big Max pizza stand like I was really disappointed when it went back yeah I remember when Mexican pizza used to have and even like the nachos used to have the scallions on them but they oh, had yeah. the E. coli scare, and then after that, they never brought back scallions mm. to Taco Bell, which I think is a disservice because obviously that adds like a yeah you need like, that yeah you need that the right. Allium. But then the other thing about the the pizza reboot was they used to have like a flaky tostada that yeah. was more like a they don't, they're just using like some like non flaky tostada. Yeah, I had one when they brought it back, and I was disappointed. Yeah. I never had an Anchorito because I think the Anchorito is like old school, old school. Yeah, when did that go out of? I think it was like the eighties or something. Because okay, I, yeah. I never Before had my time one. For yeah, sure. and like I mean, when we were like in high school, we used to like you know I played football and like we used to house like twelve packs, you know, because we would like <laughs> burn like ten thousand calories like Michael Phelps or something. And now if I ate like one taco, I'm gonna gain like thirty pounds. <laughs> but like, I it's crazy, man. I eat thirty percent of what I used to eat like ten years ago, and I work out almost every day. And I'm like maintaining. It's crazy as you get older, yeah. but like um, the the enchilada is really really good, man. Like so, yeah. And then I can keep going, but we'll we'll move on because yeah. You may have touched on this, but what is your favorite junk food combination? Yeah. So, um, well, this I think comes up because you and I were talking about. You sent me the hot mustard uh, Doritos. Doritos. Yeah. And my natural idea was like, well, you should mix those with the sweet chili Doritos. Just like the hot mustard sweet. Yeah. I haven't done it yet because a- after you sent me that, I'm like, we're I, like, apparently they're at Jewel, but I haven't been to Jewel in a while. So yeah, I, I think get... you have to go to Jewel for those novelty ones. I tried Mariano's and I couldn't find them. Yeah. Um, well, I just tried the uh, spicy ketchup 
Dorito, which yeah. tastes a lot like ketchup. I didn't really care for it. <laughs> but also, my sister had um, the Cool Ranch, uh, I don't know if it's Smart Pop, but it's like a Cool Ranch Dorito uh, popcorn, and it was actually very good. That does sound good. Dude, I saw like Crunch Berries Smart Pop. Like, oh, like the man, captain, I, I was that. like, do we really need that? Isn't <laughs> yeah, that, that like, weird. it's like These just crunch berries. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Um, I mean, like I just, I, I mean, I love snacks too, obviously. So came back from Montreal. Um, I brought like a ton of crunchy bars back, like a big, cause you know, Mondelez, um, in America and, uh, uh, does the, like the Cadbury stuff in America. Whereas mm. Cadbury UK does the stuff for Canada. So the chocolate quality of the candy bars in Canada that are from like Cadbury are different than the ones that are here. And so they're mm. much better. But I'm a huge fan of like Coffee Crisp and Crunchy Bar from Canada. And we brought the, this one is really interesting to me. So have you guys, I don't know if you guys have ever had like uh, Humpty Dumpty uh, sour cream and onion rings. No. So it's a Canadian chip huh. specifically. They're like a puffed, uh, like, like a onion. Un- yes, but. So my my son, he eats this thing and he goes, I can never go back to Funyuns. Like, because he loves Funyuns. Funyuns, yeah, were my, maybe my favorite chip growing up. Yeah, I love them, but this is superior to a Funyun. Yeah, don't give them to me. I don't want to get hooked. So, so <laughs> I, I brought some of those back and like I'm always I'm like so like last week I went on the website and I was like, okay, who makes these? And it's like uh, Old Dutch, which by the way is in Waukesha. Hmm. So I'm like, oh, these are made an hour and 15 minutes away from my house. So then I'm like, can I visit the factory? No, they don't let you do tours. They don't let you buy direct. And they're only that's the craziest. So it's an hour and 15 minutes away. I cannot get this thing. I have to go to Canada for it. That's truly nuts. Yeah. So it's or you got to work on finding them a Chicago distributor. Let's storm in the capital. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure we know somebody who knows somebody (laughs) that we could get in there. Yeah, that's wild. All right. What's your favorite cocktail? Cocktail. All right. So I thought a lot about this one because, well, I, so I, okay. My, so if I just were going to pick one, like a default that has been a default for a long time, I'm going to go Pimm's Cup. Mm. Huge Pimm's Cup fan, all kinds of variations. I went to the UK uh, like three years ago or like, but just before the pandemic. So it's probably like four or five years ago. And, you know, they do variants every year in the UK. Like they don't just have Pimm's. They have like, a Pim's elderflower. Yeah. They have like a Pim's strawberry mint. I didn't really like, I usually don't like those flavor variants. I just like to do the basic and then make my own juice or whatever. Um, but I really like the strawberry mint variant that they had when I was there. So I brought back three bottles of those. And um, so like, I'll usually like, I'll, I'll do a default Pim's with the, the strawberry mint and then like throw in like some fresh muddled strawberries and you know top with cucumber do the whole thing. Um I'm I don't make my own lemonade cuz I think that Newman's own lemonade is like amazing for like a store bought mm. lemonade when you can find it. So um you know and I'm not going to make Sprite or 7 up or whatever, you know, so mm. I'll do that. But like it's just lemon and lime. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you could you can you know, juice it too and mm. I'll do that sometimes. But like um so but the Tragedy is the strawberry mint's gone, so now um, you can't get it anywhere. Like I've been buying it up from distributors whenever I could find it because I loved it, but it's gone, gone now. Did it and ever make it to the U.S. or is it? Strictly it never made UK? it to the U.S. Like yeah. the same thing I discovered on that trip was uh, they had the Sevilla orange uh, gin from uh, Tanqueray, okay, which was really good in the U.K. But I think whatever they brought here is not, not the same yeah, formula because no. it's not as good. Mm-hmm. So. 
Um, but I love I fell in love with that stuff when I was over there, um, which I know I'm talking to a gin expert, so <laughs> you're going to give me much better orange gins. But like, um, so, uh, but, but the other one, I just want to talk about this because this is something I've been doing that like I really love because it's also a daily driver. So I know everybody says Negroni, of course, because it is one of the great delicious classic cocktails. So what I did like two years ago or like kind of mid pandemic is I am from Detroit, so I'm a huge Verners fan. Oh yeah. And, and so, and I'm also of the opinion that the Verners I grew up with is different than the Verners we have now. And the old Verners used to be barrel aged for four years in barrels. Hmm. I doubt they do that now. Maybe they do, but you know, it doesn't taste like it to me. It used to be like, um, uh, I don't know if you guys know Blenheim's. You guys, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think Blenheim's is much closer to Verner's than Verner's is now because it's spicier. Yeah, Blenheim's can be, there's like two versions of it and one's very spicy. Yeah, the red caps. Like, yeah, the red you want, caps, yeah, nuts. Uh, yeah, you got to be. Uh, so it's funny, like people always ask me if I, like, I have like an iron stomach. And I was like, I don't because like back in the day in Wicker Park, I like went to this, there's this place called Chino Taco and they had this table side escabeche and like it was the hottest, like literally I'm pretty sure like it burned a hole in my stomach that I've never recovered from. (laughs) Yeah. So like, this is like the Blenheim's escabeche of that Chino Taco one. But like, um, uh, so, so I was like, hey, I'm going to try to make my own barrel-aged ginger syrup. So I bought, like, one of those smaller barrels. Yeah, that's true. Made ginger syrup, aged it for about a year, figured, like, did some math, figured with the, you know, the this contact and the size, it'd probably be closer or whatever. Um, that turned out pretty well. Like, it had, like, really good vanilla characteristics and stuff mm. like that. Um, so then I, like, drained that out of it, right? And then I um, was like, okay, well, now what do I want to do with this barrel? And then I was like, well, of course, like... Um, you know, like let's do, uh, let's do a whiskey. So I was like, um, I want to do, I, I, I got like the white dog, uh, uh, Buffalo trace, the mash bill for whatever Pappy yeah. was. Cause I'm like, mm. Oh, I'm so smart. I'm going to make Pappy in a little mini barrel. Right. Yeah, then, Verner's Pappy. Right. So I threw, I threw like, I bought like four of those or six of those things to fill up the one liter thing or whatever. And then, um, but I was like, not only do I want to make it like that, but I want a little maple in it. So I just gave it a little maple syrup, like topper in it. And I aged that out. And like, you lose a lot in those small barrels. And, but it actually turned out pretty good. It's not pappy. It, but what it was more like was a better version of like uh, Jack Daniels, like uh, the honey turkey. Yeah. It's almost like a liqueur because it had like the maple syrup sweetness to it, but it was a more mellow. You know, whiskey, it wasn't too bad, but it was a little sharper, so it was, it was good. And then um, so I, then I drained that out, and then I just did maple syrup straight. Like, I took, um, uh, like, so I know Bliss does maple syrups. I'm yeah. a big fan of Steve Stallard stuff. But I got his non-bourbon barrel stuff, and I just put that in there, did my own. That turned out pretty well. And I was like, okay, what? all right, well, I just got this barrel. I'm like, I'm going to throw a Negroni in there and see what happens. And I equal parts Negroni. Yeah, equal parts Negroni. Okay. So, um, and and so I um I have been running this Negroni, like like you know how like then like Pujol in Mexico they have a mole that like every night they yeah, just they add and add and add. Mm-hmm. I've never let it get down all the way, and I just keep building Negronis in it, and it's like it's changed over like two years. I would say like maybe a year ago I hit like this real amazing sweet spot where like I was getting like 
vanilla and like cinnamon notes in it that weren't like in a traditional Negroni. And that kind of carries through to this day, but it changes up a little bit. So that's really cool. Um, but the one, so this is the story I want to tell you because I'm interested in what you guys might do with this or Danny is going to do with this. But like, so I was at the office one night and this is when Charles was behind the bar mm. and Charles Jolie for folks who've listened to this podcast, know Charles. And yeah, you know, so they did the like dealer's choice thing and they were like, Hey, if you could do anything, so what would you do with a cocktail? And I, and I am a huge fan of Doc Brown celery. Yeah. yeah. So I said, I love Doc Brown's celery. Can we do something like in that vein? And I'm like, this would be amazing. It's gonna be. I also love. <laughs> I also love savory cocktails. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah. So like, you know, like early on. So fun story about me is I actually tried to do a cocktail book with Adam Seeger back in like 2006. Oh, wow. Yeah. And like we farmed it out to publishers. I'll share it with you someday. It's like literally wrote like half the book and I bound it and did like what it would look like and everything. Didn't work out for whatever reason. Um, but one of the things I always took out when we were doing cocktail for testing is like we would go to farms and like Wisconsin or whatever, and we just experiment with whatever. And so we were making like savory caipirinhas and like batitas mm. and like like snap pea with black pepper and stuff like that. So like whatever that night when we were at a linear or whatever, I don't know if the server didn't tell Charles because he thought this was crazy or because I know Charles could pull it off. Uh, whatever it was, so whatever came back was not an interpretation of a celery, which is not a knock on Charles. I don't think he, I don't think the message ever got through. And so ever since that night, I'm like, I want like an, in, a cocktail interpretation of Doc Brown celery. And it doesn't have to be just celery because that's sweet. Are you up for the it, challenge? It could I be, love it. Yeah. It could be the idea of like celery with whatever like if there's like black pepper or there's some kind of seasoning that makes sense to add to it, you know, like you probably don't go bloody because then you're just like, oh, it's bloody. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, I like it. It's a good prompt. I think I will like this cocktail very much. Yeah, that's right up my alley. Nice. All right. Uh, what trivia category, what unexpected trivia category would you dominate? All right. So you guys, <clears throat> if I hear this right, you guys went to Lake Forest? I went to Lake Forest College. Yeah. yeah. I went to Richmond. Yeah. Because I've heard the Lake Forest thing. So... This, so I'm a nerd. So I was on the quiz bowl team in high school. They had a national championship at Lake Forest College. Oh, really? Yeah. So we, and when I was in high school, we came here to Lake Forest. And I stick remember we stayed in the dorms and like we did like whatever, the, the quiz bowl tournament or whatever. But I also, like we were stupid kids in high school, run amok in college dorms at like yeah. Lake Forest. And I remember we were like playing like tennis with like a battery and like doing stupid stuff. And <laughs> it was just like really dumb. But um, so like I know I actually like I'm like a kid who loves like Jeopardy and like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm like amazing across the board. Um, but as we've acknowledged, I'm a huge F1 fan. So one of the things I did during uh, the pandemic is I went and so I subscribed to F1 TV. Um, they have recaps of every single race back to 1969. So I worked my way from wow. 1969 all the way. So I don't know. I'm sure there's people out there who would kill me in F1 because they've been around forever. But I could probably pull out some like F1 stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. So are those are you just, you're just rewatching the races or is it is it like a documentary so style thing? Yeah. So they literally have um, they used to from like sixty nine to about eighty, 
they did these almost like Richard Attenborough type recaps of the oh, season cool. where they like start at race one, go to race 23, and they pull out all the main details, main crashes, who won, like whatever. And then like from the 80s onwards, it got more documentary style where it was like a little broader, like you'd see more details of the races, but it wasn't like every single minute of the race. Yeah. Um, and But then of course, like the documentaries, like I, I got into, so when I was a kid, I do remember in Detroit, they used to have the Detroit Grand Prix. And um, I went with uh, my family once when I was really young. And I remember distinctly seeing like Senna and Prost's name on the screen and that wow. kind of thing. But I didn't. So pre-Schumacher dominance. Yeah. But I, but I didn't like my, my brother and my dad are like huge car guys. I'm not a car guy at all. And I'm like, I don't, you know, for me, racing always sounds like, oh, it's going in circles. And like, I don't know. I'm not really mm-hmm. into it that much. And then, of course, like so many Americans, I saw Drive to Survive. And I like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Yeah, so and, good. Yeah, and, and which I think it's done like in America in general. Like, I don't know. My feeling is like, you know, people are always like talking about soccer, soccer, soccer in America. It's coming. It's coming. And I almost feel like F1 took away some of that yeah. and is now like on level or like even eclipsing that right now. So, um, but of course, like in addition to watching all those like recaps from all the way back to 69, like I pretty much watch like every documentary that exists, like the Senate documentary, of course. Um, you know, like the, the other one is I even went back and watched like so. There's uh, like a James Garner movie called Grand Prix, which I wasn't aware of. And it's literally like they they took the Grand Prix drives of the day, like Graham Hill, who was like Damon Hill is like the 1997 F1 champion. His dad was Graham Hill. Graham Hill was like a, a F1 world champion back in like the 60s. And um, they literally put a camera on Graham Hill's car and had him drive around Monaco. And even though it's like 40 years old, it gets you in it like the way that Drive to Survive did. Hmm. Like, and it's it's just amazing, like film um, for the, for the era. So, like, yeah, I've watched everything, man. I'm like, that is cool. I'm yeah. all in. All right. To what do you attribute your success? Yeah. So, I I mean, again, like I said, I'm a huge fan of this podcast, so I listen to everybody's answers. I think Alexis's answer is an answer that was amazing from uh, Funeral Potatoes. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, my version of that, of course, is I'm a white cis male. We talked about that. Like, I have all the advantages that come from a great family. My family's always supported me. Um, you know, specifically, my wife, of course, has been just an extraordinary supportive individual. Like, she, she you know, has to eat all these calories, too. Um, <laughs> she, frankly, she knows as much or more about food than I do. So from a feedback That's mechanism, cool. yeah. if I'm, like, being too hard on something or I'm not sure about it, I can look her in the face and go, what do you think? And she'll tell me, nah, you're being too hard or whatever. Hmm. Um but, um, I mean, the other thing that's interesting, and we acknowledged this early, I acknowledged this earlier, is, like, I, I know that I'm successful in the sense that I get to do what I want in the way that I want it, and that third parties do consume it. Yeah. Now, but, yeah, I think you, if you talk to anybody who's a writer in food media these days, except for very few rare exceptions of people who have been able to get on TV in certain ways, it is a very difficult career like no one's getting rich off this like i have a real job and generally except for seven years as a full-time freelancer uh, where i i mean i'll just be straight up like i never made more than forty thousand dollars in the seven-year period as a freelancer um you know and so it's like in certain ways i was making as much as most line cooks i like most years i was doing like twenty thousand twenty four thousand so i mm-hmm. 
working in that same kind of thing. And, you know, and today I, you know, like I don't consider it a failure that I have to have a real job, but it's also like, what does success mean? You know, like, am I successful because I do have an audience or is it successful if I can make this the only thing again, you know? And so that for me is like a goal, Mm -hmm. like, because, and what's interesting about this is the lack of media is an opportunity. And because I'm being disciplined about the paywall and stuff, I see growth and I'm seeing growth every week. And like, so I now make more than I made at red eye or the sun times with my own thing. And, and, and I don't, it's not like it's plateaued. So what I fundamentally, I, I mean, the real, I mean, the numbers work, right? Like, you only need a few thousand to make the sustainable career mm-hmm. at, you know, five bucks a person or whatever per month. So um, I see a way there. Um, and so so I hope to get there. But if, but if I don't, you know, I'm happy that I've had the ability to tell a story, share the experiences of this great city um, and this great food scene. So Nice. All right. What is something that bars or restaurants do that might annoy you? Right. So, (laughs) well, I'd like to point you to the hunger dot substack that because it's all there. Yeah. No, I will say this. um, Something I probably haven't talked about, but that is very consistent. And I just saw it again yesterday. Somebody who's a very prominent food writer sent me a picture of a dish they just had. And I said to them, I just looked at the. So this is another thing. I don't know if this is true, but. I am pretty sure, you guys probably feel this way because you guys eat so much and you see food media. I feel that I can predict with pretty good certainty whether a dish is good just based on looking at a picture of it and like analyzing the texture, analyzing the way it's, you know. And and I'm not even talking about it doesn't have to be like a high-res, perfect 4K image. It could be a shitty image of good food and I still know it's good food. It's just like I've been able to start like making an equivalency of what I saw in a picture, what I eat. And then reinforce mechanism. And so I just saw this picture and I said, those black truffles are garbage, aren't they? They don't taste like black truffle. He's like, yeah, how'd you know? It's like, I can tell just looking at how they're cut and look at what they look like. Mm. And there is an epidemic of truffles truffles. in Chicago, everywhere, not just Chicago, all over America right now. So I'm not going to say that the only two acceptable truffles are like, Paragord and like Burgundian truffles in season, like black or Umbrian white truffles and black Paragord truffles. But those are the standard for a reason. They're seasonal and they're, they taste like truffles, right? There are a lot of Chinese uh, summer truffles, a lot of like black market truffles. Like they're even making like mushrooms that like look like truffles or like mm. funguses that mm. like, you know, John Mannion said it on the podcast. Like, I'll take truffle oil over that upsell any day because, honestly, it tastes yeah. what you're trying to get and the real stuff. But it, it's like everybody's, like, putting these out there and they're charging, like, 30 bucks more for the dish or whatever. And then you get this thing and you're like, if you've never had a truffle before, if if they're smart, they put truffle oil in it and then you don't know or maybe. So right, that's okay. But then also, what are they charging you for? But, but two, like... It, 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 then you all these people are like, oh, this isn't like a good ingredient or a real ingredient. And then that yeah. those markets die, right? Like we know that happens with like Reggiano, Parmigiano. Mm, like I just yeah. went to Italy last summer and like I went to like, you know, in the subset of Reggiano, Parmigiano, you guys probably know this, but uh, like there are only a certain number of dairies that can make it in this area in Parma. And then of that subset, there's only a small group of them that do organic. 
because there's no like upside to being organic because as long as you follow the DOC, it doesn't matter if you're organic or you're not. But there are a couple people who feel like it makes a difference. And so they go that extra step. And, you know, I, I tasted theirs and I tasted some others. And I do fundamentally believe that there there was like a creamierness. There was like a little bit better. But even if you're just a regular DOC Parmesan farmer, you now have to compete with Kraft and you have to compete with all of these other variants and stuff like that. And people eventually aren't able to make the living wage in Parma that they used to. And then these things disappear. And it's like, I don't know, like truffle farmers will disappear. Like, I don't, I don't you know, I, I'm not here to save all the truffle farmers, but I do feel for those folks. And I, and so it might seem like, oh, well, black truffles, whatever, but it has a, that, like, this is a thing that's prevalent, you know? Mm-hmm. And I get it because I understand also, like, you know, it's a way to bump, you know, bottom lines and things like that. But again, when I'm looking for a restaurant, like, I want a restaurant that is, not looking to dupe its consumer it is trying to give you the best experience right. possible within the confines of like listen you're gonna have to buy from broadliners or cisco sometimes that's not a big deal like whatever in fact there's really good meat i mean we talk about the Cheval burger we know where yeah. it comes from it's great like whatever i got no issues with that but like there is a line that you can cross and and so the other one it just happened to me the other day <laughs> I, I i just wrote about it in the smoke review like the late wine glass, like when you get a dish and you order yeah, the wine, in the smoker. you order the wine and you, you know, because you've been through this a hundred times where, you know, you order the wine. If you don't prepare 10 minutes earlier, it's not going to come or when you want it, nobody's going to be around for it. And, um, so yeah, I mean, smoke, we got a wine, a red wine after we finished the steak. So like, you're mm, like, yeah. what can I do with that? Oh, I mean, <laughs> I'll drink it. It's going to be good. Hopefully it goes with chocolate cake, you know, um, but, but like, uh, you know, like I, it's funny cause we went to warlord. Um, I anticipated this cause I knew we were going to get their ribeye and they have like this beautiful dry age ribeye that is, um, it's roofed with like blue cheese, but I don't know if it's a blend or this is a blue cheese that melts like Swiss cause it like creates like almost like a roof of blue cheese. That's like pliant and maybe it's a mix. Hmm. I didn't ask them, but, um, I knew that was coming, so I was in the middle of, like, a glass, but I ordered some Rioja to get with it, and the server was like, yeah, she's like, Are, do you want it now? And I'm like, yeah, and she's like, oh, because it, like, cause you think it'll open up? And I was like, no, I just, I just want to make sure it's here for the steak, you know, and, like, I'm actually, like, pushing the hospitality there a little bit that's on me like i i don't know it's not that i think they probably would have done it right based on everything i experienced there but i'm just like jaded i've seen that so much that i want to be prepared right smart yeah yeah the informed diner yeah um all right what is something that food writers do that might annoy you so i think about this a lot um because so we talked about like how like I stopped watching food uh, stuff for a while and kind of lost like a little bit of the passion. And so everything I described to you about like me coming up and that passion and like wanting to be a cook and like all that stuff, I've carried, I've tried to carry that with me and burn that flame and whatever I do, um, because I want to be a fan first and foremost. While I do believe in the ethics and I do believe in that separation. I am a fan of what you guys do. I'm a fan of what every chef does. Um, I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Um, I love it more than anything. I love it more than Formula One. You know, this is, (laughs) I love it. 
which is saying a lot because I love Formula <laughs> One. I, that's why we went to Montreal, went to the Canadian Grand Prix. Oh, okay. so um, I, uh, um, but what happens? And I'm sure you guys see this in your professions. Something you love, you're now part of a market, and that market has competition, and that competition breeds like. People like make decisions about like, do I want to support this person or do I not want to support this person or do I want to be in competition with this person? And then you can start to go away from like the fandomness of it and you start to like, oh, that person sucks or I don't like what that person did. And you're focused on that competition. And Mm. so that competition exists in the food writing community. Like it exists with like TV reporters. It exists with, um, you know, Journal, print journalism all across it and like I said back in those days when it was really competitive it got a little ugly and like that was part of the reason that I kind of lost my passion for it because I started finding myself feeding into it Yeah. and I and I was like I gotta back away from this because it's not why I got into this and so as I've come back to it now with more passion about it and try to keep that fan eye in my mind um, what I don't like now is that people who haven't who haven't gone away from that who haven't figured that out. Like like today, for example, I retweeted Nick Kindlesperger's article about Warlord on Instagram. And that's because I love what Nick does. I don't see myself in competition with Nick. I want to support Nick. And I, I do that for everybody in the community, whether it's like Dennis Lee, whether it's John Kessler. Um, I have one exception. I'm sure you guys probably know who it might be. Um, <laughs> or and if you don't, like, you know, I'm not going to say it because I've made a promise to myself. I'm not going to talk about this person anymore publicly. But everybody who knows me knows who this person is. <laughs> but, but like, um, uh, I don't want to feed into that. And, yeah. and I hope that those folks don't do that either because what we really should be focused on is celebrating the good restaurants. Yeah, and it's food. not productive for the readers either. It's, right. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Cool. And then our last question, what is the best thing about Chicago's dining scene? You know what? So... This one is like, it's what everybody else says, because I do get to go to other cities quite a bit. I do get to see other like dining scenes. I do talk to chefs from other places. Um, What I do, I do, there are strong supportive scenes elsewhere, but I do think that Chicago's scene in terms of community and in terms of support for one another. So it's actually like what I just said about with writers about, I don't like where we're all like trying to fight over this pie or like we try to compete. Um, I feel, and there, of course there's competition here. And of course there's people who will sometimes tear other people down or whatever. But I do think in whole, the way that people in this scene uplift each other, like when, you know, Jeannie and Tim won last week, so many people were like, yay, Jeannie and Tim, not, oh, well, whatever, what, what about me or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Like, yeah. there seems to be this 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 rising tide lifts all ships kind of mentality amongst the community that I see. And, you know, I, I may, I even frankly, when I was that rival, so to speak, I maybe criticized Phil Vitell for that a lot because I felt that Phil sometimes went too cheerleader-ish. Um, but also, it's a good thing in that sense of like, you know what? There are worse things to be than to support our dining scene if that's the way that right. Phil chose to do that. So, you know, I, I do love that, and I think that is special about Chicago. Very nice. Excellent. That was the last question. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm.
And that concludes our conversation with Michael Nagrant. Thanks for listening to our longest episode yet. Thanks for hanging in there. We hope it was worth the listen. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram at JoinersPod for exclusive additional content. This episode was produced by Matt Haddock, music by Captain Cuts, and videos and real work done by the one and only Joe Guzzo III. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.